Operation Red Pill, a podcast hosted by ORP Productions, where we take you beyond conspiracy theories and get right into the heart of the conspiracy itself. I'm Jason Spears. And I'm Christopher Dean. Together, we're going to take you on a mind-bending journey across another aspect of this occult matrix, as we discuss in this week's Intel Briefing, Valentine's Day, Sex, Gods, and Monsters. Oh my... Is Valentine's Day an innocent holiday of cards, candies, and flowers for twitter-pated lovers? Or is it an ancient pagan celebration with ties to blood, human sacrifice, and even werewolves? We're going to talk about this and much more coming up right here on Operation Red Pill. Ladies, gentlemen, Valentine's Day hopefuls and Valentine's Day rejects. Everyone from across the podverse, welcome back to another episode of Operation Red Pill, where we like to take you behind conspiracy theories and get you right into the heart of the conspiracy itself. Now, I'm here to tell you, this is one episode I did not want to talk to Christopher Dean about. He came up to me the other day. He said, bro, we got to chat. I said, what we want to talk about today, man? He said, I need to talk to you about Valentine's Day. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold your horses. Time out. Cut it. We have an assortment of things we don't talk about. And one of those things is Valentine's Day. There are people that question the nature of our friendship and what we don't need them doing is overhearing us having a conversation about a romantic Twitter-painted lovers-filled holiday amongst ourselves. I'm going to need a third-party witness here if we have this conversation. Someone that can back me up and testify to the fact that this was an above-board convo. He would not acquiesce my request, ladies and gentlemen. He proceeded to go on and tell me things that I did not want to know about. Start talking to me about things like what does the pagan holiday of Lupercalia have to do with Valentine's Day? I said, what? I thought we got rid of leprosy, bro. I don't know why you were talking about that. He said, nah, baby, follow with me. I need us to discuss something else. I said, what else is it, Christopher? He said, listen, I need us to discuss whether or not blood and milk. He said, don't get grossed out. Pay attention. Whether blood and milk provide the color schemes for our day of love festival. I said, Christopher, once again, I'm going to reiterate. We do not have a day of love festival between us. I don't want no confusion. He said, focus, bro. We got a third thing we need to talk to the people about. We need to ask the question, what in the world do the Nephilim kings, werewolves, and other monsters have to do with February 14th? Do they share a common bond? I said, well, daggone it, Christopher. I guess we're going to have to talk about it in this episode. He said, absolutely. So he proceeded to do the work. He went ahead and did the research. I went ahead and filed a restraining order just temporarily to make sure that there were no issues. And now we need to bring him in from behind the restraining wall so that he could talk to the people. So, ladies and gentlemen, please take your left hand, smack it together to that right hand. Put out the esoteric call for my co-host, Mr. Christopher Adam D. How's it going, bro? What's happening, baby? How we doing? Oh, I probably shouldn't call you that at this time. What's happening, kind <laughs> sir? How are we doing? Fantastic. I'm excited about this one. And I'm glad that despite the restraining order that they let us Zoom 
So that that was a nice touch. You know, you have to look inside the cloud to find the silver lining, but sometimes it's there if you look close enough. That's fair. That's fair. That was a very delayed response. Are you not feeling that? I was just thinking inside the cloud. Now I didn't know if you were like actual clouds or metaphysical or like overthinking the technology. You're overthinking. Like now we're talking about the <laughs> silver lining in the cloud that I pay Apple for. Sorry. Yeah, my brain just, it, it took that and ran with it. I see. Pull it back in. We have a lot to discuss today. <laughs> we do. Okay. I'll get it. I'll get it together. All right. Nobody cares about how I'm doing. That's amazing. How are you doing, Jason? Wow. That's Look, you were the one that was like, hey, they're going to have all these suspicions and people are going to talk about well, us. What are you supposed to it do lasted with this part? You're supposed to ask the seconds. question. No, it you're supposed to ask the question. Seconds. What have you been watching? And you're like, oh, does nobody care about me all of a sudden? <laughs> no. First, I didn't cross my arms. Second of all, I'm waiting for you to go <laughs> they, ahead and ask the question. You don't know that. Yeah. What did you watch this week, bro? What have you been up to? We talked about this so, like four hours ago. I know that. I know that. I was just allowing space so you people need could space. know that okay, there's a little bit of distance between Because what happens at that point us. is I have to edit that back out. Now I got to edit all so, of this crap out. This is great. People love this. They, they do they, not. People would pay extra for this. I, would. I would like to meet them. I, uh, I hear about it on the internets. <laughs> but <laughs> since we haven't been able to hang out, you know, due to this restraining order and stuff. Yes. Yes. Um, what have have you What have you been doing to occupy your time? Watching stuff, streaming services, anything like that? Uh, you know, I've been doing a lot of crying. There's been some work with tissues. You know, I've, I've happy been having, tissues or sad tissues. It, you know, it, it's, there's been a lot going on. I've had to really filter my emotions. I've been talking to my therapist. You know, Mr. Daniels goes by first name Jack, and you know, we've gotten to the bottom of some things. <laughs> Nah, dude, I've uh, I haven't had much free time actually lately. But the little bit of time that I have, I've still been working my way through this young Sheldon show. Okay, and I came right, tell across, me about the the young sir. You know, the show bothers me on a lot of different levels. A lot of them. You know, one of the problems I have is how the character is being played. He's not played by the way Jim Parsons played him. Jim Parsons played the character like he may have a bit of a undiagnosed disorder. You know, maybe he was okay. suffering from, from uh, I think it's called, uh, what is it, Asperger's? Asperger's? Asperger's, there we go. I think he, he this character is kind of played that way, whereas this guy plays the character more from an immature perspective. And so it's a little annoying. Like nobody wants to stand up and actually parent the kid. Okay. And it's aggravating because now I'm watching the relationships within the home disintegrate. And it's disintegrating based on what I would consider weak male leadership. Like the dad is not a strong dad. The mother okay. is running the show. And the mother dotes on the son, Sheldon, while almost favoring him over the other siblings. And I'm okay. like, this is problematic because as she dotes on him, she doesn't really correct the behavior. And so since the character isn't being portrayed as maybe having a, a disorder, then we're dealing with mm -hmm. the maturity issue and the maturity issue okay. is allowed to go unchecked 
making it very difficult for other people to deal with them and also making it look like it's okay to be this way. I'm like, this is problematic to say the least. Mm -hmm. But I'm hoping that as I move forward through the show, it'll get a little bit better. I don't know. You might be a little bit masochistic, I think. You think so at this point? (laughs) Well, I mean, you keep talking about it and you're like, it's bothering me on so many levels. And you keep watching it. I'm watching, but I'm also studying. No, I get that. If you weren't coming away with like the breakdown and the messaging in it, and you were just watching it and torturing yourself, then I might have something to say. But it does seem more like a a study attempt for sure. Yeah, we'll see maybe uh, in the next few episodes what young Sheldon has, has surprised me with. Okay, sounds good. But enough of Sheldon. We have got to talk, brother, about valentine's day we got to get into this thing about the sex gods and monsters Brother, I have noticed that we live in a sex-crazed culture where sexists used to sell everything from beer to plowshares. But behind this exploitation of sex comes the inevitable fascination with all things erotic. In fact, it could be argued that eroticism has become one of the most defining aspects of our pagan culture. A culture that is ruled by Capric gods like Pan and the Baphomet These are two goat gods that are known for their sexual depravity and sensual lasciviousness. Bearing that in mind, when a culture dedicated to all pagan gods such as ours embraces a holy day that's geared towards sex, love, and the occasional roll on the rocks, can it truly be seen as harmless? Or are we willingly allowing ourselves to be pierced with Cupid's arrow, defiling the image of the ultimate lover Yahweh that we carry in our being and in turn replacing it with the twisted image of Eros himself? What say ye? Replacing the image of Yahweh with Eros? Yes. What's the problem? Who even thinks like that? It takes a dysfunctional... That's crazy. Never mind. I'm sorry. I was going to quote another line you can't quote on the family show. My bad. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) I I didn't see that going there. (laughs) I mean, I don't get questions like that from anybody else. So it's it's fantastic. It's it's a good question. Uh, Thanks, man. No problem. But I think it'll take a little bit a little bit to unpack. All right. Let's see if we got a little bit of time. Maybe the peoples will give us a couple minutes to unpack this. I hope so. I hope so. To start, let's just get this out of the way at the beginning. Valentine's Day is a sex holy day. Amen. We begin <laughs> We begin our indoctrination of this day as the first years of government schooling. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the National Condom Day is also celebrated February 14th. What day? National Condom Day. What is that like for ketchup? No, not condiments, but like condom, like a, you know. Like um, short enough condoms? Yeah, yeah. Shut up. Nope. National Condom Day. So you can't you can't tell me that there that there is not 
an erotic connection here. I mean, forget that. I'm crazy. trying to go to work and see if I can. Oh, this is going to be a great pun. If I can get off for National Condom Day. <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I want to see that letter to HR. That's what I'm saying. As soon as I'm sitting in HR's office, I'm like, I saw this going a completely different way. But I don't, I don't see what the problem is. People's let me go. Right. <laughs> I mean, we we try to to kind of skirt the issue. Wow, this is just this is <laughs> not intentional. <laughs> oh, so many puns. These are great. Oh, that's funny. You know, we use different terms and we try to church it up, right? We yeah, call it yeah, romance, yeah. passion, love, but all of these things in our horribly occultic English language can be applied to the act of sex itself. And it's, it's interesting. Bustle.com says that 68% of millennials say that Valentine's Day is the occasion on which they have the most sex. And get this, it beat out a person's wedding day by almost double, with only 37% of people saying that their wedding day was the day they had the most sex. I find both of those statistics deeply troubling. Yeah. I figure that first off, when it comes to the 68% of millennials, we should be dealing with a, a 1% plus or minus derivation. Okay. There, there definitely has to be one more percentage on that. I can't trust 68. <laughs> right. I was going to venture a guess somewhere between 68 and 70. That's so. I think that's a safe percentage we, we should be able to see. <laughs> My second issue is with... 37% saying that their marriage day was the day they had the most sex. Like, even if that's true, that means from the time they got married on forward, they were having less sex in a married situation. I got a problem with that statistic. Yeah. Like, both of these are bad. Uh-huh. It's it's crazy. I'm already depressed. That's great. Thanks, Christopher. <laughs> and the fact that we have five and six-year-olds dressing up and handing out Valentines to one another in school to celebrate a sex day. Yeah, this might seem strange to the thinking believer, but we probably shouldn't be surprised. I mean, it still holds a pagan deity as the representative of this holy day, right? Cupid. All right. I, I could see that. You just took okay. my mind back to, to elementary school with the Valentines and the, will you be my Valentine and all of that. And oh, yeah. Oh, we'll, whole, we'll get to that. Shebang. I wasn't ready for Cupid. <laughs> yeah. But it, it really, I mean, it starts that young. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, it does. But for those, that, for those that don't know, Cupid was the Roman god of desire, erotic love, attraction, and affection. So he was the child of Venus, the Roman goddess of love, and Mars, the Roman god of war. Whoa, 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 whoa. Are you telling me that those two, love and war, uh-huh. produced a child? Uh huh. That's over the holiday that <laughs> love and war, <laughs> love and war. Yes. Like all I can yes. think of is, uh, oh man, what is this? What is the dude's name? Dude who was married to Jennifer Lopez for a minute. Um, what is his name? Anthony Patrick. What was the guy's name? Mark Anthony. That's his name. Mark Anthony has a okay. song, "All Is Fair in Love and War."
Okay. Right? Great. Duke can sing. Great song. But mm-hmm. I'm thinking, like, there's this common pairing between these two in our culture. I would have never okay. guessed that they conceptually have their roots back to this pairing of gods. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. wild. It's, yeah, it's real weird. So, love and war get together. They have Cupid, but he's not the innocent little cherub that we see today. He was actually a pretty mischievous little god. And for those that don't know, an added feature of this is these gods, uh, Venus and Mars, have Greek counterparts. So instead of Cupid, we have Eros. And instead of Venus and Mars, we have Aphrodite and Ares, which are essentially the same. The stories are the same, but they they have different names and, and slight cultural variations, but they're pretty much the same. crazy right i'm stuck on just the fact that cupid and eros are the same person yep they're the same person dude when i was writing the the intro uh-huh we talked about being pierced by cupid's arrow and eros i didn't know that yeah that's why i kept asking you are you sure you didn't read through the note no <laughs> this stuff kept coming up and what you wrote i'm like how did you not read this? No, maybe God does talk to me from time to time. Right? That's it's, crazy. it's crazy. I didn't know that. Yeah, Cupid and Eros are the same, and the name Eros is where we get the word erotic. Now that I knew. Okay. All right. I feel good about something. <laughs> so this mischievous God actually caused all kinds of trouble because he didn't just have the power to have people fall in love. He also had the people had the power to have people hate each other, fall out of love. So if you got shot with one of Eros's uh, golden arrows, you fell in love with the next person that you laid eyes on. If you got shot with one of his iron arrows, you would end up hating the next person that you saw. What if you laid eyes on yourself in either case? Could you fall? Then maybe in love with I, I, I don't know. Maybe that's what happened to Narcissus. I'm, I'm not sure. All right. But I know like as a punishment to Apollo, he shot Apollo with a golden arrow and then Apollo saw a nymph and then he shot the nymph with an iron arrow. <laughs> that's just mean. Yeah, it was bad. It caused this whole thing like the nymph just hated him so much. Like she ended up like turning herself into a tree or something like that to committing suicide to get away from him. So then he still didn't stop loving her. So Apollo like made the tree sacred and it's a super weird story, but being able to manipulate the hearts of people is really at the heart of Cupid and arrows, not just supplying the world with this warm, fuzzy feeling or affection. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, super interesting. And I'd like to take a moment to recognize that the version of the god of erotic love is represented today by a naked baby. It's always bothered me. Yeah, I mean, with pedophilia on the rise, the Epstein documents coming out, a federal holy day representing eroticism with a baby, I just think there's too much for it to be a coincidence. Yeah, I think, uh, how would they say? Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with the machine. I think the problem is that the machine was designed to to function this way. 
you know, it's, it's not a bug. It's a feature. <laughs> wow. That's a t-shirt. <laughs> I mean, it's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure what we could apply it to, but that, that'd be pretty funny. Yeah. Th- I mean, this broken. through, it's not a bug. It's a feature. It's a feature. Yeah. That wouldn't be bad. That's that wild. wouldn't be bad. So just as a, as a quick example, I think looking at the Olympics, this is a wonderful time to look at the Olympics. Okay. Why? Because, uh, the fact that these, um, these ancient pagan rituals aren't a bug, they're a feature. So hang with me here for a second. The ancient Olympic games were first played by the Greeks who performed these competitions to honor the God Zeus who lived in Mount Olympus. So, the Greeks were a culture that frequented orgies. I even read a couple articles that said that they were like the, the can't say that they originated them, but they kind of gave us our modern iteration of orgies was born through Greece. Really? Not sure how accurate that is, but it definitely lays weight on the fact that orgies was a massive part of their culture. And I thought we had to thank the French. <laughs> that it was just for the kissing. Well, they also, you can't forget, they invented the menage a trois. Oh, there is that. It's just, it's like the the mini version. You get cupcakes and mini cupcakes. <laughs> so what was Greece? Like the whole cake? Yeah. Greece was the whole cake. Oh, <laughs> and wow. then you just have smaller, other different versions. Oh, that's why. But with that being the case, it seemed no better way to end a religious ceremony like the Olympics than with public sex parties. Right? That makes sense. I mean, this is just what they do. No, I was thinking they probably had these type of orgies in between events. Um, Sometimes. Like, it was definitely, like, it was, the whole Olympics were a celebratory time. But the thing that made the end of the event such a, a big deal is that the winners of the Olympics were actually expected to share their physical prowess with other people and this happened through sex and eroticism yeah you're the winner you're the the best uh, well it's kind of like the roman thing that they did with gladiators you know get their sweat turn it into an aphrodisiac a way of okay i don't know if you ever heard about that but one of the things they did in rome with gladiators is they would actually collect their sweat and then sell it as an aphrodisiac i didn't know that it was really weird i'm like you're selling for collecting people's sweat is strange, but then right. you know, with the pheromones and all that other stuff in there, selling that, uh huh. And people, yeah, going nuts, going wild for that, like big business. That's weird, yeah. So, there, there seems to be a connection with that culture, too. That's interesting, yep, yep, huh. And the, and the same type of thing is happening in our modern iteration of the Olympic Games. So we st- so for one, we still call them the Olympic Games, which is a little bit of a problem because they were named that for the gods that lived in Mount Olympus. That was the, the holy place mm-hmm. for the gods. Have the same name. They were held every four years. We hold them every four years. Like It's very much a recreation of the, the Greek practice. And there are also unmitigated sexual encounters throughout the Olympic Village. And the Olympic Village is the housing for the athletes during the event. Weird, right? <laughs> My mind immediately just went to, to cool runnings. <laughs> it has been a long time. Feel the rhythm. Feel the rhyme. Get together. <laughs> oh, it's going down time. 
<laughs> That's funny. Once again, Man. Disney makes a, an appearance. Yeah. But it's interesting because in the Olympics, I, I've heard expert after expert explain explain away this activity purely in the physical, right? They're young, they're in the top shape of their life, they're surrounded with other people, you know, why wouldn't they engage with other people that hold their bodies in in equal status, right? Right. But I'm like, hold hold on a minute. You're saying people from all over the world, different sports, different cultures, different religions, all share the same sexual culture for two weeks every four years? I'm, I'm a little suspicious. And then, I mean, just combine the fact that it's recreated after an event to honor pagan gods. And this is what they did in the ancient event to honor pagan gods. And they're doing the same thing. I'm like, come on, guys, you're making it more complicated than it is. I'm so glad, dude, you mentioned this. I tried telling one of my, my close family members about their um, almost infatuation with the Olympics. They're just looking at okay. it like it's a sporting event. And I'm like, no. Its roots are religious. That is the only reason it's being done. No, right. no, no, no. These, felt- these are about sports. <laughs> and I'm like, see, I go ahead. I, I don't mean to cut you off. I'm just excited. Well, no, I was just. <laughs> this I was, was so I- frustrated with with them as I was talking to them because I'm like, you don't get it. You really need to understand. It's not that the the sports aspect is necessarily bad, but it's about mm-hmm. seeing beyond just what's right in front of you. Like umpteen million right. people worldwide are going to watch this thing, and most of them are going to be clueless to the fact that this is has less to do with sports and is a carryover from a religious practice. And I'm like, mm-hmm. if you're a serious follower of Christ, you should have a little bit more awareness or at least care when it's brought to your attention about this thing you're viewing. Nah, mm-hmm. they just want to yeah. go ahead and just watch sports. And I mean, watch it for the entire time that it's being broadcast as much as they could. And I'm like, that is crazy to me. Yeah. See, I grew up and my mom and my sister loved the winter, the winter Olympics. I do too. Like Christy Yamaguchi and figure skating and, and all that. That was like, I remember that being a big deal, but I also remember being so young that I didn't care. Okay. I'm like, who, like the names would pop up and these numbers. And I'm like, I don't, why are we watching this? And then as I got older, I was like, I'm not a huge sports guy, but like, these are the best like athletics of the entire world. Then I was like, this is actually pretty dope. And then I learned what it's really about. And I'm back to, well, now I'm less excited about it. Like it's been a whole through my life. There's been a, an, uh, what is it? A, a waxing and waning of Olympic interest. As, as I learned more things, I get it. I was stuck actually between mostly winter Olympics is my thing, especially when I was growing up. Okay. Love the Winter Olympics. I love, you know, the bobsled is cool. I love the one-man bobsled. I think it's called the Luge or something like that. But those Mm -hmm. are always cool, you know, where they lean back and they're on this super fast sled. I like that. Uh, The curling, I can't understand. I don't know why it's a thing. We're always sweeping in front of this thing on ice. I'm like, I don't get it. It looks like they were doing chores. I don't understand. (laughs) Speed skating, I love. I love the the high, the, um, I don't know if it's called a high jump. But when they're on the skis and they do that jump. Okay, yeah, yeah. Ever since I saw a dude hit a bird in the middle of that jump, I have been addicted to watching it. Because that was the <laughs> funniest thing I had ever seen in the world of sports. Like, yeah, can you imagine training for like birds? four years? 
and this is your shot, and you leap, and you know you he's got he's got his form, he's together, and he's like, Hoop, I got it, I got it, this is good, hold it, hold it, hold it, and he looks to the right. What the hell is that? Is that a falcon? No, that's a sparrow. No, you've <laughs> got to be kidding me. No, no, and he hit it, and it knocked his ski off. And I was like, oh, oh my God. so now your aerodynamics are off and everything. And the dude landed uh-huh. one leg. But I was hollering. I was like, can you imagine the <laughs> profanities that happened at Impact? I was like, why wasn't he mic'd yeah. up? I would have loved to have seen that again. <laughs> I like, I, you know, there are a few different winter ones I like. Then I got my summer ones. For whatever okay. reason, I don't know what it is. I really think it's their finesse. But I find myself drawn to female gymnastics. Okay. Yeah, it has nothing That's to do with, with their form or clothing. It's it's really the sport that I'm drawn to. Okay. That's about all I watch. I gotcha. It's weird because I still like have this warm, fuzzy feeling I thinking really about watching some them. pushback from you. You really let that go. Yeah. Well, I, I really, my mind went a different way. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like I thought it was really a thing. My, I actually went and I was going to fight you a little bit on the, they changed some of the gymnastics because there was one bar that the women would hit with their pelvis. Yeah. And it actually looked really cool, but apparently it was bars. doing, it was doing uh, irreparable damage to the reproductive systems because oh, at, a, at a young it? age, so many times they were making that impact. So even though it looked super cool, they actually took that bar out and took out some of the moves that you weren't even allowed to do for the Olympics because I of the damage that it was doing. Why. Yeah. I think you're talking about the uneven so that, bars when they, when they they flip around on that. Mhm. Which is super crazy to watch, you know how they do that. Right. Just because it we're talking fun. about the Olympics, I am going to switch for a second. The the okay. rings are the craziest thing to me when the men do the rings. Yeah. The amount of strength that that crap has to take is mind blowing. Yeah. It's uh, like it should be inspiring, but it's so far ahead of like what I'm able to do physically. It's always like, I should just stop. <laughs> you don't, but like, no, it's when really you see impressive. the guys walking up there, it's so interesting how their physique is different from like a bodybuilder's. Mm-hmm. And still, the, I mean, the bodybuilders exhibit a certain amount of strength or a certain type of strength. This is a different type of strength that's like full body. Like, it's not how much right. weight can your arm curl or your chest press. It's can you link up all the muscle groups in your body in order to, to sustain your body weight on a ring that's moving? Uh-huh. Like, that's a yeah. crazy amount of, of core strength and everything else. So uh, there mm-hmm. are some redeeming aspects, I think, to the Olympics from an athletic perspective. But I think any serious follower of Christ would be remiss if they ignore the spiritual implications of that event just right. because they like sports. For sure. I mean, because one article I found, it was even titled Inside Sex Mad Olympic Village, where Randy athletes have hot tub orgies and romp with celebs. I was like, wow. what? Cause, cause I did more research and I was, cause I remember hearing about this before and I was like, you know what? I actually think this is a pagan thing and didn't dig into it. But this time I dug in, I found one article and it had a quote said, I got laid more in two weeks than the rest of my life. Who was making the statement, a guy or a girl? I didn't, I didn't get a name. Okay. I, I mean, I was crazy. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Many athletes confess that as as many as 75% of the athletes participate in the the hookups or the the group sex during the Olympics. Now, in the 2016 Rio Olympic Games, there were 450,000 condoms passed out. That equates to about 42 per athlete for a two-week period. That's wild. Yeah. And this is, so for me, this goes far beyond just, hey, we're a group of people that also have nice bodies. You know what I mean? Like this is sex crazed or like the, the article said, the sex mad Olympic village. And for somebody that's out there going, well, they just distributed that many condoms. They didn't use any. I think it was. Um, Ugh, I don't want to see the statistic for how many used condoms there were. Well, in the Japan Olympics, they ordered 70,000 condoms and they ran out. Like they had to order more condoms and rush more condoms to the Olympic Village because like it's crazy to think about the numbers, like 70,000 male orgasms, right? Mm -hmm. So at least 140,000 participants in sexual ritual magic, essentially. That was the point I was going to get to. I was, you know, the idea of that much energy being released to, Mm -hmm. I don't want to say to, that much energy being released in a event that is dedicated, if only in name, to ancient gods that still do exist. Yeah. Can't be accidental. And definitely can't be harmless. Right. That's for sure. So yeah, I've, I now I feel some type of way about watching. Like it's kind of cool, but on the other hand, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not so sure about this. But we really, I don't think we should be surprised because at least here in the United States, our nation is dedicated to who? All pagan gods. So, so this is the very thing our nation has been oriented towards since its inception. True. I, I think we talked before in our. Um, uh, subscribe and slave episode about how when these things surprise us, it's just evidence that we've been adhering to a, a non-biblical worldview. Yeah, yeah. I think this is one of those things. I can not, see that. Not just Valentine's Day, but the Olympics too. Like you, you have to collide with. Well, this is what the Bible says. These things are, and we're like, I can't believe it. Yeah, ESPN well, never shows me that. Okay, there was just the lighting of the torch. You know, dude, oh my gosh. Like some of this stuff really frustrates me because I came out of a home where some of the stuff I would talk about and it would just get bypassed or, or, you know, brushed off to the side. But I'm like, so much of stuff is like right in front of your face. Nobody asks any questions. Why do you run in with a torch? What's the whole lighting of the torch? Who holds it? Why is this similar to Lady Liberty? Mm, Yeah. You know, are we talking about the light of Lucifer? What's going on here? Nah, it's just, you know, just their skill. I'm like, it's so interesting how quickly we can water down things that are right in front of us. And I mean, this Mm -hmm. goes for everybody. This goes for you, me, anyone listening to us. It's a tendency that we have as human beings. The, The real catch, though, is to be able to notice it and then correct for it. Because so much paganism yeah. is literally right in front of our face. Mm-hmm. And we're just, we, we're being taught to downplay it. 
We are, and we, we real quick, and then and then I'll get into Valentine's Day. But we had a conversation about dreams. Okay. And so many times when you're describing a dream, which is born from your subconscious, you you have to explain away things that are clearly impossible and illogical. Right? I think in your dream you had people show up and then they left, like they teleported in and out, and it was totally normal. Like, no big deal. Nothing to see here. And then <laughs> <laughs> right. And there's so many times like, you're like, it was this person, but they had a different face or it was my home, but it wasn't really my home because it looked more like the empire state building, like all of these weird things. Mm-hmm. And it came up that it's, it's possible. I wouldn't build doctrine off of this, but I think it's possible that in these created realities of our subconscious, so much nonsense becomes emotionally and cognitively believable should be a sign to us that that type of nonsense is probably believable in the real world as well. Like that's how much we should be relying on God to form the basis of our reality and not ourselves. If we can really like in our dream state, think that they're somebody and not somebody with a different face at my house. that's not really my house teleporting in and out and have no issues with it. I think it's the same type of thing that we experience when we look at like the Olympics, Mm -hmm. right? Because we're uneducated. We're not taught to draw these things out and come to conclusions. So we have the name, we have the symbolism, we have the fruit of the working, you know, needing all of these condoms and and things like that. And we're still not like, oh, this is totally normal. Like, because it's just, that's how easy we are to fool sometimes if we don't take on the mind of Christ. Exactly. So exactly. We should, why we it's should so be important. Yes. Yes. That's why it's so important. Is that I, what you were going to say? Or did yeah. Like, yeah. Cause I mean, I hundred percent okay. agree. Uh, and it's okay. so, it's so troubling how often we're not geared towards that. You know, again, <laughs> I think we were talking about this in sub- subscribing slave, how much the idea is I'm grown. I'm mature. I'm an adult. I shouldn't have to do this. Right. right. This is not what uh-huh. mature adults do. We're not dependent on our mommies and daddies. So, I yeah. mean, I'll check in with you guys from time to time, but I'm not asking you about everything that I got to do. What do I look like to you, a child? Right. Why would I ask you about a sporting event? That seems ridiculous. It is. I'm just going to a sporting event. Like, don't overthink this, dude. <laughs> and I think the problem yeah. is we're underthinking it. For sure. I think we're absolutely underthinking it. Mm-hmm. But getting back to the uh, the spiciness of the episode, we know that uh, America functions as the new Rome, and we get most, if not all, of our Holy Day celebrations as an admixture of Christian names attached to the pagan practices of ancient Rome. So in this, trying to filter it out, the, the whitewashed, sugar-coated version of why we have a Valentine's Day is thanks to a pope who wanted us to remember a dude named St. Valentine. Okay. So there are many stories uh, because the Catholic church apparently murdered a bunch of people named Valentine. Like this is, this is another one of those like weird dream state things. And I even typed it out and had no emotional response. And when I was editing and reread it, I was like, that's just like a normal statement, but that's a, that's a statement. You know what I mean? Like there's so many theories about where, the Valentine's day got its origins because the Catholic church slaughtered so many people named Valentine. I'm like, that's a problem. I think my problem is that's not the shocking part of that statement to me. What's going on in my mind is that 
there were a lot of people who named their kid Valentine. <laughs> really? That really seems like a one-off name to me. It kind of does, doesn't it? Yeah. But I mean, maybe that's That's the identity theft ears. name? Like, that's the equivalent of John? <laughs> yeah, everybody. <laughs> Yo, that wow. Yeah. John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. Valentine! <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Valentine Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. Maybe like, I that doesn't ring. Thing. Right. Maybe I took the wrong thing away from that. <laughs> uh, but the, the most pervasive and almost agreed upon story here is that in the third century, during the time of Claudius II, there was a, a supposed moratorium on marriage. And I, it sounds weird, but th this was the justification. It doesn't just sound weird. It is weird. So before Christianity was actually legal, Rome was at war. And in this time, you only got called into the draft if you were a single person. Okay. That, that's how the law was set up. So many young Romans who didn't want to be forced to go to war would hurry up and get hitched as soon as they could. They could dodge the draft. So <laughs> instead of changing the law to make it that just anyone single or married could go to war, Claudius II decided it was a good idea to outlaw marriage. Interesting. That's it seems like a yeah, weird roundabout way to kind of fix the problem. Don't you judge I, him. You're not emperor. I no, I'm not. And you know, touche. <laughs> But this guy named St. Valentine in, in, this, in this era, he refused to abide by this edict and he was actually found privately marrying Christians okay. to, to help them avoid the draft. So, of course, Claudius II did not take kindly to this and he had Valentine put in prison. Okay. So, while he was um, imprisoned, the happily married couples would send what they called Valentines into the jail cell and they let to let him know, you know, how happy they were, the fact that they were so um, relieved that they didn't have to go to war and they could just bask in the love of their new marriage and, and whatever, you know, they, they say that's, that's where this come from, came from. And then while imprisoned, apparently Valentine was able to convert the jailer's blind daughter to Christianity. And when this happened, she was healed of her blindness. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And then Claudius II heard about this and he's like, okay, I've had enough with this Valentine dude. Let's chop his head off. February 14th, schedule's clear. Let's make it happen. So this is the story that a lot of people think is what's supposedly remembered in our holiday. But it wasn't until the fifth century. So if you, like we said, it was the third century that Valentine was murdered. It wasn't until the fifth Um and the rise of the Catholic Church that we get Pope uh, Glacius I. So he formally denounced the previous Holy Day and instituted the Holy Day of February 14th to commemorate the martyrdom of the patron saint of lovers who, he had, who Mr. Valentine had become. He had become Saint Valentine, the patron saint of lovers. So now we know from the very first breath of Rome and Christianity merging, that there has actually been a concerted effort to mix the two. And as Manly P. Hall tells us, to redress the paganism in Christian phrase, phraseology. So what was it that Pope Glacius I was covering up by instituting this Valentine Holy Day? It was actually 
a Roman holiday of purification called Lupercalia. It was traditionally celebrated from the 13th to the 15th of February. So it's not the 14th, but it's kind of the same. (laughs) Lupercalia consisted of, of three days and the Pope's like, it's just one. So we'll take the day in the middle, split the difference. So officially Lupercalia stopped at the very same time that Valentine's Day started, but not surprisingly, many of the practices and the traditions of Lupercalia found their way into the quote unquote new Christian holiday. Of course. So this, this is where it gets fun. You know, we like doing these, right? So the tradition of being someone's Valentine, you know, the whole formal be mine, request that's printed on candy. Mm-hmm. This actually comes from the practice of men drawing names of women's drawing the name of women out of a box to be paired up for sex magic rituals in Rome. And what? sometimes yeah, they would all they would be together for the entire 13th to the 15th. And sometimes they would stay together until the next Lupercalia. And on rare occasions they'd actually get married. So for me, like if you're looking at it logically, this makes way more sense that we have a putting your Valentine in a box and all of that stuff in our tradition to and instituting this, will you be my Valentine? Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense if they're just letters, if it's actually from St. Valentine and letters that people sent to a jail cell. You know what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. Like nobody became the other person's Valentine or anything like that. Like it just, it seems like a real clunky explanation to why we have this practice. This one from Lupercalia, I'm like, that, that fits. That is interesting. Yeah. It's, it's weird. The, the treats that we get, the, we give candy and treats to one another in honor of this day. But traditionally it was the Vestal Virgins. They were priestesses that worshiped uh, the God Vesta and they would bake cakes and, and hand them out. So that's where that came from. All right. And then you're going to love this part, Jason. <laughs> I have a feeling I'm going to hate it. <laughs> the colors of red and white actually originate from <laughs> the sacrifice of goats and a dog at Lupercal and then the washing of the blood with white milk. What? So, so what happened was the Lupercai, that was the priests of Lupercalia, they would sacrifice one or more goats and a dog. So the goats are supposed to represent sexuality, and some believe that the dog was sacrificed in honor of the she-wolf that nursed Romulus and Remus, um, but we'll get into that here in a minute. So these priests, what they would do is they'd sacrifice the animals on Palatine Hill in a cave called Lupercal, cover their faces in blood, then wipe them off with milk-soaked wool. So this what was all part. Are yeah, you this is a- talking about? <laughs> Wait, it gets worse. So this is where we get the color scheme. You get the red and the white, and it would mix, so you get pink. So this is the makeup that they did on Palatine Hill as a ritual. Then they would take strips made from the goat skin of the sacrificed goats, and they would put them into what were called thongs. Shut up, Christopher. (laughs) Thong song, anyone? You're not going to ruin thongs. (laughs) And they went into the city whipping any women within striking distance. And because this was a fertility ritual, it was said that the woman that got beat with these thongs became fertile. 
So most of the time, because this is what they wanted, the women would line up in the street so the Luprakai could come in dressed in the red blood of the goat and the dog and the white milk and beat the women in the street to make them fertile. No, we can't pray to Yahweh to actually, you know, remove barrenness. This definitely seems like a much more reliable approach. <laughs> yeah, this is this is good. This is good. This is science. The science it's of the, the day. Science. Yeah, you need to trust. I it. mean, it. Yeah, I mean, it was. So this all seems super strange and out of place, but understanding the founding of Rome myth kind of gives a little bit of context to put it in. It makes it a clear, but only, only a little bit. It's still kind of weird. So the founding of Rome myth is, it's really, really something else. So what happened according to the general understanding of the Roman mythology is that there was a woman, Rhea Silvia, and she was one of the elite priestess class called the Vestal Virgins that I mentioned just a moment ago. Okay. So among, among their duties and obligations and privileges, they had to maintain their virginity for the entirety of their service to the God, the goddess Vesta, hence the Vestal Virgin title. And because of this, they were considered like super elite class. They had to dedicate themselves for at least 30 years and they were given privileges that, that, um, were not accessible to anyone else in the Roman Empire because they were Vestal Virgins. Hmm. So it was a pretty high status. And that's who this Rhea Silvia was. And then the god of war, Mars, um, chased her into a cave and raped her. And then she conceived twin demigods, Romulus and Remus. He really raped her? Yeah, that's how the story goes. Well, that got sick quick. Mm-hmm. Trigger warning, by the way. If you have young ears listening, it might have been a good idea to not let them listen to that part. Yeah, a little too late for that one. <laughs> well, if you got pla- past the goat's blood and milk and whipping women, maybe this isn't too bad. But the children, Romulus and, and Remus, were forced um, and abandoned in the wild because their mother violated her vow of celibacy. Go figure that one. Right. Doesn't seem right. Doesn't seem just. It, do, it, it doesn't, but this was an edict from the king, uh, Amulius. I think that's okay. how you pronounce it. So while outcast, because they were very young, a she-wolf found the boys and nursed them back to health in her den called Lupercal. That's where they got nursed back to health. The boys were then found by a shepherd and he raised them to maturity so they could return and usurp the reign of King Amalius. He was the one that decreed him outcast. So that's, they got raised or nursed back to health by the she-wolf, raised by a shepherd, go back and take over the throne. But then they wanted to set up their, their own city. So the twins Romulus and Remus actually disagreed and had fights about exactly how they were going to set up the new city. And this ended up with Romulus killing his twin brother Remus. So Romulus could be the first emperor of Rome. Interesting. I didn't know that was the history. It is interesting. Yeah. History, mythology, it's mixed in a little bit. I think it's kind of hard to tell when one starts or when one ends and the other begins. 
So the, the celebration of Lupercalia was traditionally celebrated from February 13th to the 15th and was established to remember the wolf that saved the demigod twins and founder of Rome, Romulus and Remus. And also it was supposed to help cleanse the nation for the next year. And it's interesting because February bears the name of a goddess of cleansing of Rome and February was supposed to be the last month of the year. Well, that's weird. It is weird. So, you know, we've talked about the issue before of our days of the week and how much our culture is steeped in paganism, right? Mm -hmm. We've mentioned the fact that our months don't even line up with the numeral names that we give them. October, which means eight, is actually the 10th month. December, which means 10, is actually the 12th month. And we're like, what in the world happened? So it's, it's interesting because the theory is that when Romulus founded Rome, he chose March to be the first day of the year. And it was named March after his rapist father, the god of war, Mars. Seems a good way to, to start the year out. But in Romulus's calendar, he only had 10 months. So apparently the first calendars of Rome ran from March to December, which makes October 8 and December 10. Okay, that makes sense. And I guess the confusion came in with the second king of Rome because he added January and February to the calendar. And somewhere in history, they got mixed and the two months got put in the beginning and not the end. And it throws off all the names. And, and now here we are confused and wondering what happened in 2024. <laughs> but it, but it's, it's interesting because Lupercalia was the cleansing ritual to honor the founding of Rome. And it was supposed to be set up in the last month of the year okay. to, to kind of get the, the um, what is it? The favor of the gods to start the new year in March. That was kind of the idea behind it. Okay. But it doesn't make sense, you know, having it all, having it all switched around and, and just showing up two months into it. Right. But I found myself asking if there was no February during or before Romulus, and paganism, we know, goes all the way back and ties to Nimrod, Semiramis, and Tammuz, then what was actually being celebrated before the end of the year celebration of Lupercalia? What did this, you come up with? This is where it gets absolutely crazy. So this kind of explains the Greek-Roman overlap that we, we talk a lot about. You know, we've mentioned that the Roman culture kind of mirrors the Greek culture in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. And the theory goes is that Evander, not Holyfield. So about just Evander, <laughs> just Evander of Arcadia. He was said to have taken the Greek pantheon of gods, the law of Greece and the alphabet of Greece to Italy on a Mount called Palatine Hill. What? Yes. So I he took all this information came from the Romans conquering. Not, not according to this legend that okay. the actual laws, the alphabet and the pantheon of gods was set in the area of Rome before Rome ever became a nation. So he, Evander ended up being deified. So later he was considered the son of the Greek God Hermes. Well, that would explain the whole thing. And, 
That's yeah, funny. I get it now. Uh, but just to make the connection, Palatine Hill was that was the hill um, that the Lupercal Cave, where Romulus and Remus would later be nursed back to health from the she wolf, and it's that hill where they say that Rome was founded, according to the the myth. Like historically, though, Palatine Hill is one of the seven hills of Rome, and it's the oldest one. And this is said to be the place that Evander, the son of Hermes, came and laid out the theology and the law and the alphabet for when Romulus then, another demigod, established Rome. Okay, that's wild. But I, w- I want to ask you this question. It's a little off topic. But here you okay. are talking about Romulus and Palatine and things of that. And I want to jump over to your favorite franchise, Star Wars. Okay. Okay. And I'm wondering, is there a connection just conceptually between this emperor, Palatine, who establishes a whole empire and this idea of Palatine Hill that establishes the Roman Empire, which like does emperor sweep pa- over Palpatine? Is it Palpatine? It's Palpatine. Oh, well, that's not Palatine. It's not. It's similar, though, because I wondered, because... Um, I'm not a Star Wars fan, so I just got that wrong. No, that, that's fine. I, I made the connection, too, because I know that George Lucas took a lot of things from reality. Like, Tatooine is actually a, a place. It's a, it's a desert place that you can find on the map. He oh, made it his okay. own planet. So, I'm not sure if Palpatine is a derivation from Palatine. Okay. It, it could be. Um, uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure about that, but it is interesting. And I was thinking about it while putting this together. Interesting. I was okay, like, that's cool. interesting. Yeah. Cool. All right. Back but yeah, to so the subject not a hundred percent sure. <laughs> so there is a little bit of historical debate because like we said, it's a little bit mythology. It's a little bit history and all of that. So the myth says, you know, Romulus formed Rome on purpose, but the data seems to show that Rome kind of slowly grew as, you know, Evander showed up on Palatine Hill, and then there's these outside threats to the area. So the, the villages and the towns kind of gathered together. And then once enough of them gathered together, then they established themselves as Rome. Okay. So it seems to be, the, at least the data that we can get this far removed seems to suggest that it was a progressive growth and not like a moment that all of a sudden a demigod made Rome on Palatine Hill. Gotcha. So, there's that, that that differs from history a little bit. Okay. Um, and I actually read a couple places that Evander, the guy that, that took the Pantheon of Gods and all of that to Palatine Hill, established Lupercalia. But if we look at how this is set up, it couldn't have been the case because Evander was pre-Rome, therefore pre-February, therefore pre-Lupercalia. So I was like, okay, if it's not actually the Lupercalia that we see celebrated in Rome in in these later months, what was it? So uh, I was looking at it, and he did actually bring a religious festival to Palatine Hill. And it does, if you do the work and uncover it, it is the precursor to Lupercalia, which actually makes it the primeval Valentine's Day. Okay. What was the, what was it? So to understand what the the actual ceremony is, we have to understand the story of uh, the king of Arcadia. 
So the story of the king of Arcadia goes, his name was Lycaon. And I might be pronouncing it a little bit wrong. I read all of this stuff, so you have to forgive me. Lycan or Lycaon, something like that. King of Arcadia, besides being just an absolutely horrible, horrible person, he hated the god Zeus. Okay. He doubted Zeus's divinity. He refused to believe that he was all-knowing and decided that he was going to set out on this, this little adventure to figure out, you know, does he really know everything? So during a feast for the gods, Lycaon murdered his own son, Nyctimus, and mixed his entrails in with an entree for Zeus to eat. Apparently, there is this weird idea that if Zeus was really all-knowing, he wouldn't eat the food that was contaminated with human flesh. So this was his way of testing that. Hmm. Well, it kind of backfired a little bit because as soon as Zeus took a bite, of course, being angry now that he was tricked into eating human flesh, he struck Lycaon's house with a bolt of lightning. And this, strangely enough, transformed Lycaon into a wolf. And it's said that this same curse was applied to his 50 sons, all except from Nyctimus, who Zeus brought back to life after eating his entrails. A bite. Not, not all of them. Right, right. Just a bite. Just a bite. Yeah. This is really, really interesting to me because the 50 sons of Lycaon actually became eponyms of 50 separate cities which is the, the namesake. Like you could say that Christopher Columbus is the eponym for Columbus, Ohio. It bears his name because of one of the things that he did, even though he was lost. But, but that's what it means. Okay. <laughs> and uh, believe it or not, King Lycaon is considered by some, myself included, unless I come into some more information, but to be the first Lycan. AKA lycanthrope or colloquial terminology would say the first werewolf. What? Yes. I don't even have a folder for this man. <laughs> so there is, there's actually a medical condition called lycanthropy, which is, is where, where a person excessive bel- hair growth. No, I thought that's what it was, but I believe it's a psychological condition where people believe they're a werewolf. I, I could be wrong, but that's that's what I came across. Um, and it's interesting because so many of our psychological conditions, like Oedipus, Narcissus, all these come from Greek, the Greek mythos. And I'm like, there might be, you know, if you're talking spirituality, or not spirituality, but if you're talking about like spiritual entities, there might be a lot more of that going on than we give credit for. If we've assigned these names to these conditions, to current conditions nowadays, I don't know. I think there's, there's too much to be a coincidence there. I agree. But if we, if we consider the fact beyond just the idea, okay, he turned into a wolf, but his sons being the epony of 50 different cities suggest to me some type of Nephilim right to roll via the divine alteration of DNA. But that's just the Greek legend. That's to help us understand this religious practice that is really the precursor to Valentine's Day. Okay. So the Ar- archaic festival of Lycaia that it took place on the highest peak in rustic Arcadia called Wolf Mountain. 
All right. And this this was considered a rite of passage for the young Arcadians of particular clans, the clans that come from the 50 sons of Lycaon. So this this reminds me, if you think about, and if anybody has seen Twilight, <laughs> the, the werewolves, at least in this idea, the werewolves don't develop their power until like, there's a rite of pass. I don't know what happens. I know that it develops like later on. Hey, don't try to church it up. You know you read the books. Go ahead and tell us what happens. No, I didn't read the books. I watched a couple of the movies, and then I honestly felt like my masculinity was being hijacked and used against me because I was like, sweet, giant wolves eating vampires. This sounds like something I'd like. And then you get glittering in the sun and other stuff. I'm like, this shouldn't be in my movie. Why is this ruining my movie? Interesting. I never watched Twilight. I was an underworld guy. Underworld was good. So that's yeah. the only uh, association I have with this whole lichen idea. Okay. It's interesting because I've kind of developed over time. I couldn't figure out why they called them lichens in the movie. Yeah, me neither. And then I played, there's a game, I think it was Ninja, Ninja Gaiden. Okay. And there's a level called Lycanthrope Castle. And you get there and all your enemies right before you kill them turn into giant werewolves. And I was like, wait a minute. Lycanthrope, lichens. I was making the connection and had no idea when I was doing Valentine's Day that Lycaon would pop up as the as the precursor. So that's that's pretty interesting. It kind of fills in all the gaps for me now. Yeah, that's cool. But in Twilight, they they were born like normal humans and had to go through a rite of passage, and only some of them developed the ability, I think that's how it went. Only some in the movie, only some of them developed the ability to be a werewolf and the other ones didn't something like that. This is very much like this rite of passage of the Akkadian clans for Lycaia. So a lot of the specifics um, have kind of been lost to time, but they, they would, there would be a gathering of young adolescents and some type of human sacrifice. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, somewhere in the midst of the feasting and the cannibalism, they instituted a ritual that was thought to trigger the werewolf transformation. This is what happened in the, the festival of Lycaia. And uh, Plato, you, you know, the father of all Western philosophy, mm-hmm. he said that one of the clans would go through this rite of passage festival uh, and sacrifice every nine years, during which only a small part of the human entrails were added to the meal. And the way that it worked is that whoever had eaten the small morsel of human flesh would be turned into a werewolf or a wolf. And in order for the human to be turned back into a man or to take to have this werewolf curse taken off of them, they had to go the nine years without eating human flesh and then go to the ritual again, participate nine years later, and be freed from the affliction. Would that require them not to eat flesh during that ritual? Probably, otherwise it would just perpetuate itself. Okay. And apparently, I don't know why his name isn't in the notes. It might be in the links and resources. But um, one Greek writer talked about a boxer of the ancient Olympic Games Mm -hmm. and that he was actually one of these Arcadians that went through the ritual. He ended up getting tricked or eating human flesh or whatever, and then had to spend nine years as a werewolf and went back 
to get the curse removed before he either played in or won the Olympic Games as a boxer. Which is interesting. Kind of yeah. ties it all, all together a little bit. Right, right. That's what I was but thinking. But yeah, real odd stuff. And the uh, archaeological evidence, hang on. It, it shows that um, far before Zeus, that people actually used this place for rituals. And there's even a, a rock formation, a crystal seal bearing the image of a bull. Which is interesting because historians have compared the rite of passage done during Lycaea to sacrifices to Moloch, saying they have a striking resemblance. So it makes me wonder if if the human sacrifice is infant sacrifice on Wolf Mountain. And if you eat the babies, then you turn into a werewolf. That's gross, but also fascinating. (laughs) It is, right? Mm-hmm. That's it's crazy. And, yeah. And, it, you know, as we know, the worship of Moloch was warned against all the way back in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's interesting that one of the, the Nephilim tribes that Joshua was commissioned to destroy was said to have had the ability to shapeshift. Yes. I was wondering if you were going to touch on that. Yes. And if Laura Sanger is right in her understanding of iniquity, switching on particular epigenetic markers, then there really could be something to this practice of eating human flesh and becoming a werewolf. I tell you what I find fascinating. You know, okay. you start talking about this idea of a werewolf. Most people who are under the influence of a of false reality overlay are going to dismiss it. Like, that's just Hollywood. That's science fiction. That's crap. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's an accurate view to take. And here's why I say that. Okay. We have biblical precedence of a human being mm-hmm. actually switching and and leaving their their human state and becoming a beast. Um was it uh was it King was it Nebuchadnezzar? Yes. With Daniel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Exactly. What do you, I believe he spent, what, seven years in that state mm-hmm. where Daniel had to feed him and, and help keep him alive. Right now. That's crazy. Some yeah. people might write that off and go, well, that was just an act of God. So that's not a it's not a normal thing. So how are we having this whole idea of lichens and werewolves and things like that and the moon? And and I don't know if the moon part is, is necessarily accurate or what have you. That may be part of the lore. But remember mm-hmm. this, when you, when you go back and you look at the story of Moses and you have the instance where God told him to throw a stick on the ground, right? And the stick became a snake, mm-hmm. which is, that's a harder order of magnitude of difficulty to take something that is inanimate and unalive and switch it to something that is alive and a different form. Right. They had the priest, Pharaoh's priest, actually replicated the same feet. They did. Right? And they had two snakes, uh-huh. two sticks on the ground. Both of them were able through dark magic to replicate it. Now, of course, God's snake actually ate the, the two others. But that being said, how do you how do you actually rectify that? Uh-huh. In your mind that a stick went and became a living form. Whether it was a snake, a giraffe, anything, just how do you go from stick to life form? 
Not even Doctor Strange was able to do that. Right. If that's possible, then the idea of going between two different living life forms seems less difficult. Yeah. So if we're able to buy the the harder feet, which is the snake turning or the stick turning into a snake, we should have less trouble really buying the idea of a human being shape shifting into another an, another species. Mhm. Then I I go back to the uh Genesis 6 incursion. Right? Right. And um you know, the, some extra biblical texts give us like specific numbers, whether it was 200 different species or something like that. But the canon actually tells us that all flesh was corrupted by what these Nephilim were doing. Mm-hmm. So whether it was, you know, sci- scientific genetic manipulation, whether angels actually mated with other beings, like if they had sex with a cow, that's how you get a minotaur, a horse, that's how you get a centaur, a deer, that's how you get was the... No, that would have been a goat. Seder was a goat man. Okay. The, oh, I, it just lost me. They were typically gold if it was a deer, and the blood was said to be able to kill a a god. Never heard of it. I don't know. Yeah, but you get all these these ideas in these ancient mythologies that would not actually be that different than the biblical narrative. You do. So you you got to wonder, you, we're not supposed to take what the Bible says and limit our experience to just what it says, right? Exactly. Because if that were the case, then, then you could argue that, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about pornography or anything that has to do with the internet. You know, that, that would be ridiculous. Well, but what we have to do is... Because it does talk about pornography directly. Oh, because that's... But yeah, right. Does. But it, what is it? Pornea is it's the word that we actually get pornography from. Well, it's yeah. Well, but the tie is to fornication. Fornication. Okay. Yeah. When I it gotcha. talks about fornication in the English, that comes from the word pornea, which I okay. want to say is Greek. Could be Latin, but I want to say it's Greek. And that's where okay. we get the term pornography from. Gotcha. Okay. I stand corrected. But yeah, these, these modern day things you know, air travel and internet and things. Well, the Bible couldn't say anything about that because it doesn't say it specifically. Right. That's not what it's for. It's supposed to give us a framework to filter things through, not a box to put everything in. Nice. So just like you're saying, if we see supernatural events of people practicing witchcraft and turning sticks into snakes, then we have to use that as one of the filters for reality, that's a possible thing. Now right. it's rare. It even it only even happens in the Bible just in that instance, but it is possible. Exactly. And it was possible for it to be duplicated. That was the other thing that just really blew my mind. Okay. Yeah. You know, because I would have in written this- it off real easy just saying, well, that was an act of God. He can do whatever okay. he wants. But then when right. you see the occult priest replicate it, Okay, might not just be act of God in the traditional sense. Might be really right. dealing with supernatural powers and manipulation, like things that only spiritual beings have access to. Mm-hmm. But and could you imagine power? It was still <laughs> capable. Yeah, it'd be terrifying. Like, could you imagine the BGs? 
in 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 Moses's gut when he thinks he's here doing stuff, and you know his snake staff turns into a snake. Oh, and then you species. get. I heard, yeah, ah, 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 staying alive, staying alive. I was like, what does that have to do with the snakes? That's funny. <laughs> but you meant the bubble guts. The bubble guts. Ah. Yeah, when you think you're there and all all the pagan priests are doing the same thing, yeah, replicating like, you your God's around, power. Like, I'm sorry, God, I thought you said we had an arrangement. I don't think right, that's what understand like. what an arrangement really is. How it's, I mean, it's like your snakes yeah. lost a uh, dude. Did you see it? I mean, look, your snake. I mean, they, they both did it. I thought we had something special. God's like, turn around. Like, there's only one snake. Yeah, it's mine. I didn't see it, God. I don't know. That might have been a trick. So you're like, you know, I'm just joking, right? Like, <laughs> gotcha. Should have seen the look on your faces. Right. All right. I'll see you later. <laughs> exactly. That's funny. But no, beyond that, you know, we've talked about the the royales and the, okay. the these royal bloodlines that think that they are superior to humans because they actually have Nephilim blood running through their genes. Mm-hmm. And we have this all flesh is corrupted and we have, you know, there's even in, in the Egyptian mythology, a lot of the gods had heads of other things heads of a jackal, heads of a grasshopper or whatever. You mm-hmm. see this, this crossover between human and animals and that's what the Bible tells us happened. And we see throughout history that these entities believe that they had the right to rule. So it's interesting that the king of Arcadia, and, and we know that this, this ritual place on, Pal- uh, on the, the highest mount in Arcadia, the Wolf Mountain, that they were... They were doing this ritual far before Zeus showed up. So th- from the story we have, it's just the modern iteration. Like we have the modern iteration of the satanic control matrix, but we know the lies and the power go back long before that. Right. But the, the thing, the principles we get are consistent. The king was not just a human king. He was a human wolf king and his sons that started cities were also human wolf entities. So it fits this guideline and this, you know, this ritual or whatever feeds its way into the beginning of Rome where Romulus is supposed to be a demigod where literally a God rapes a woman on earth and creates these creatures. It's all the same thing. These Nephilim think that they have a right to rule over humans because they're not actually human. They have this angel DNA mixed in, whether it be epigenetics and switched on through iniquity, like Laura Sanger talks about, or being there from birth, this is what they think gives them the right to rule. And having this story align with so much of what we see, am I willing to put all my money that King Lycaon was the first Lycan and it happened because of Zeus? No. But it does, if we filter it through the Bible, open up the possibility that there was a line of human wolf hybrids that thought that they had an ability to rule. Hmm. There, there's just too much connection. So it's, it's interesting. That's kind of scary too, especially if that, that wolf human hybrid is the size of Shaq. Yeah, it is. Not what you want to see coming at you at any time of day or night. Right. Right. It's, it's crazy stuff. But I do have, I have one last little tid, tidbit that I think is crazy for Valentine's Day. Okay, what you got? So, 
there was a temple on uh, or in Arcadia on Wolf Mountain, and it was de- dedicated to a Lycian god. And there was a cult following of this god, and they came with Evander to Palatine Hill in Italy and helped establish, like we talked about, the legal, grammatical, and religious foundation of Rome. Okay. And it's interesting because some Greeks would have called this god Faunus. The Romans would have called him Lupricus, which is where we get the name Lupercalia, is the precursor to Valentine's Day. But the Arcadian, the werewolf cult that worshipped this god from Wolf Mountain, called him Pan. Okay, now I understand Pan to be a goat god. Yes, half man, half goat god is the god of shepherds. So these connections in this, and and lots of archaeologists will say that the details are a little bit lost, but we see some consistency. So they sacrifice goats on Lupercalia. And Romulus and Remus were raised by a shepherd. So you see this kind of fingerprint of this, this hybridization, goat, shepherd, like instilled in all of this, this mythology. Okay. And what, what's crazy is Pan is the seducer of children. Right. Because we see, what is it, Peter Pan? He takes Wendy. He plays a pan flute. He takes all of the children to a land where children don't grow up. Like it gets pretty disgusting pretty quick. And then even in the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Mr. Thomas seduces Lucy by playing the pan flute. And she ends up going into a deep sleep and yeah. Yeah. And then I was thinking as I was doing this, the story of the Pied Piper. That's what I was about to say. Yeah. Now that's not specifically attributed to Pan, but it is considered by many to be a historical event. Okay. There's, I think there's even a town and I I should have done this research. I apology my, my apologies, but there is a town that actually has a monument to our like, 2,000 missing children or something like that. Really? So some, some people think, yeah, that it was um, the, the Newtonian physics um, explanation is that the town fell on hard times and they had to eat their children or they had to sell them into slavery or something, but it coincides with the, the timeline in the area of the Pied Piper. So it's either real that this dude showed up, fixed the rat problem, and they didn't pay him, so he stole their children. Or what they try to say is that the coping mechanism of the town was to create this story because they couldn't deal with the fact that they ate their children. But it's interesting that this this persona, this characteristic, fits the pan persona, the flute, the stealing the children, the you know musical hallucinations, and and that type of thing. You know, pan it's, is actually the the common. Um, conventional caricature of Lucifer. Like when we see the red-headed figure with horns and hooves, mm-hmm. what they're really displaying is Pan. Okay. So like the, the, the sabbatic goat, the, the Baphomet, like all of that, yes. it's actually Lucifer just represented, how would it be? Pan represents Lucifer. I don't know if Lucifer. I would say they're actually Lucifer. Okay. I, I, if, my opinion and my understanding is that it's actually pan. And in our culture, we give him that position of what we call Lucifer. But this is why you hear so many people talking about Lucifer doesn't have horns and isn't red with a pitchfork. 
You know, okay. the common iteration of the devil in Western ideology and iconography is actually the goat god Pan, not the biblical not not the biblical character Lucifer. I'm saying the Western iteration of that. When we draw it out, when we look at the caricatures, everything that we're shown okay. in culture is really this this red goat god. And okay. what happens is you you get the unfortunately because so many of us are not really well versed in our scriptures, right? We allow Hollywood mm-hmm. to implant on us, and it becomes more authentic than the actual scripture we're okay. following. So as Hollywood constantly portrays the devil as being this goat God, we in turn visualize that and it becomes our standard when we're dealing with this character, not the way the Bible depicts him. That makes sense. The Bible never depicts okay. as far as I can, re- as far as I can tell the Bible never depicts Lucifer or the Satan character as, as a goat. No, it just, he's represented, like some say, the, the scapegoat in the Old Testament that you would set free in the woods. You know, you'd ascribe all the sin, like put all the sin on him, ascribe all the sin to Azazel or whatever, and cast the goat into the woods. Right. That'd be the only, like, goat but connection. A different entity, apparently, than, than the actual uh, Prince of Darkness. Right. And they never said that this goat was him. Exactly. Right. Like, exactly. But here's the other stretch crazy thing. To... The way that Lucifer is actually depicted from an animalistic perspective is vastly different. It's never depicted as a goat. He doesn't have a, a, a what do they call it? A capric form. Okay. What he is often referred to as is serpentine in nature. Mm. Right? He's the, yep. the great dragon. The serpent of old. It's very, very different from this goat guy. Well, I wonder, it also makes me wonder if they, if they intentionally play games with us in the supernatural. Meaning? Just to see how stupid we are. Because, you know, we're, we, you're talking about how, you know, we ascribe the, the caricature or the image of Pan and say, oh, well, this is the version of Satan that we have. But then I'm also thinking of, we did the episode on um, Michael Aquino. Mm-hmm. And he tries to summon Satan. And whatever shows up goes, hi, I'm Satan, but my real name is Set. So it makes me wonder if they function in a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom fueled by deceit, if they thrive on trying to convince, you get the Azazels and you get the pans and the sets going, you know what, this century or whatever, I'm going to be the one that pretends to be Lucifer. And if we're not savvy enough, if we're not using the Bible to filter all of that information, then you just lead all these people astray in ways that from the outside is clearly deception, clearly doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind def- of interesting. It, it is. And it's so necessary for us to form a healthy biblical perspective when we're dealing with these things and not become victims of, of cultural colloquialisms and, and Hollywood icons and the symbolism that comes from Hollyweird because it will mm-hmm. begin to distort and corrupt your view of what is biblically accurate. And then what that right. allows for is, is for a vulnerability to exist. Now you, you were saying a moment ago, you wonder if they just play games. I'm sure they do, but I don't think that the games are without merit or purpose. 
And I think one of the oh, real right. fallouts for that type of a game you were talking about is that it really creates a vulnerability in a person for their inability to perceive Lucifer as he is. So when the scripture mm-hmm. talks about he can disguise himself as an angel of light, other people will fall for that disguise. Yeah. Because uh-huh. they have an expectation of something that's inaccurate. Right. Because we're looking for set or we're looking for the the goat God, the Seder, because we're looking for all this other stuff. Right. And the Bible clearly tells us how the devil is going to present himself. That's interesting. Yet here we still be deceived. Mm-hmm. There'd be those people like, I didn't see it coming. Which is scary. It is. It is. And a little bore, a, li- uh, a little bore, a little more um, word magic. Isn't pan where we get the term pandemonium? Yes, but do you know where it comes from? No. So one of the practices they would do, the followers of pan, they would engage in these and a couple things. I think Tom Horn covers this in one of his books. I want to say it was Apollyon Rising, but he covered the fact that the followers of Pan would engage in these really horrific and violent feats of expression of their worship. And it would range from straight out sexual debauchery and orgies and things of that nature to full on club mob violence. And when they would get stirred up in their worship of the goat God Pan, they would go into these frenzies and they would call it either panic or pandemonium. Oh, panic too. That's interesting. Pain. Panic. <laughs> I really hate when Disney movies really make their way into my conversation, but they've been yeah. so impactful in certain ways. But yeah, uh, pandemonium, panic, all of that. Those were actually expressions of the followers of pain when they would get stirred up to certain heights of ecstasy and, and euphoria and their, and their uh, ritualistic worship. Interesting. And just to be clear, these Akkadians, the ones that did Arcadians, sorry, the Arcadians, the ones that did the the ritual on Wolf Mountain, Mm -hmm. the human sacrifice and all of that to become werewolves, they worshipped Pan. Yeah. That was one of the deities that they worshipped. Yep. That's crazy. And I think in in seeing that Pan, um, you know, is a, seducer of children or whatever. I think it makes sense why, you know, he's really the, the precursor, the God of Valentine's day. It's not Cupid or Eros, right? If you follow the line all the way back. Um, but if he, if Pan is actually capturing and and seducing children, I think it makes sense on why we get the Eros and these mischievous sexual deviant gods. And then why even today we have an infant representing eroticism. Well, tie that together. In America. Why? Why does it make sense? Well, because he's taking children, right? Okay. So, and you worship him through orgies and all of this and through uh, Peter Pan, Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe, like all of these representations of him in our media, he's taking children. That's one of the things that he did. So you're connecting eroticism and children and all these years later, changing the name because of a Christian guy that died and all of that, the the core ideology of the day is not changed because it's still eroticism and children. Okay. I can see that. It's kind of crazy. It is. 
And uh, I mean, just to tie it all up, you know, the the cult of child abducting God called Pan began a festival of Lupercalia, and it was celebrated in Rome until the fifth century when a pope. Galatius I tried to conceal the truth of the Holy Day by rebranding it with the murder of a Christian named Valentine? That's nuts, right? That's that's crazy. I mean, sex, gods, and monsters. No doubt. You know, when I started down the Valentine's Day trail, I never expected to end up with all of this. Now, I, w- I wondered if it was even going to be a nothing burger because we listened to Truth Unedited's breakdown of, of uh, Valentine's Day. It was only mm-hmm. like 15 minutes. I'm like, what, are, what am I going to do with this? Right. But th- there is so much stuff here. In fact, some of it could be difficult to track with. So for those who have maybe gotten lost in the weeds or for the rest of our listeners who traveled this far out into the woods, uh, but all they were able to hear me say was this. <laughs> Can you help your boy out? Can, can you take us beyond the conspiracy theory and get us right to the heart of the conspiracy itself? Uh, dude, that, that's a tall order. Uh, it's funny. I'm still stuck on the person that's been listening to you. And for an hour and 40 some odd minutes, all they've heard is. <laughs> I'm like, that's a committed I, person. Cause they stuck <laughs> with it. They're like, it's, it's gotta get well, but, better. Well, maybe it's the whole young Sheldon approach. They're like, this has been terrible for an hour and a half, but maybe he'll finally say something good. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll give him that. The ironic thing is you said a lot during this episode that I think is really dope. And, you know, Thanks, dude, bro. Here, you're welcome. Here, here's the thing. Um, you know, we've got, <laughs> when we start out on this whole holiday thing, we were just really trying to track down an answer to something that Rob Skiba had mentioned, which is that, Pretty much most of the, the the holidays that we celebrate in America were the result of pagan festivals. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, there's no way that's true. Let's search it out. Let's see what let's see what he's talking about. In every one of these holidays, I've been surprised. Okay. Every one I've been just just shocked. And what's really happened is that I've gotten shaken in a certain sense. And I've had to be okay. shaken. How do you mean? Well, the shaking is when when you get accustomed to a certain reality and then you find out that it's not true, depending on what process is used to wake you out of that stupor, it can be a bit alarming. It's kind of like what we saw in the movie The Matrix. When Neil had to take the had a choice between the two pills and he decided he was gonna take the red pill, and then he started freaking out as reality really became started to grip him and the reality of what he was dealing with really became more apparent. Right? He almost okay. he almost had his mind split. And they were talking mm-hmm. about this happens. Right? So and that's only when you have a very direct and, and drastic process or experience that rips you out of the matrix, so to speak. Okay. Thankfully, God is a little bit more tender with the approach for most people. But there are others who do get a very visceral awakening. And I think for me, it's really been waking me up out of this this stupor I've been in. And a lot of the stupor has been generated by what we call the false reality overlay. Right. And that's this 
this this thing that we have to understand it's, it's part of a, of a two-part mechanism of technological advancement that was instituted by the powers of darkness to respond to the the technical disadvantage or tactical disadvantage rather that they found themselves after christ infiltrated the timeline after he was incarnated and actually took on human form it really changed the spiritual period not just paradigm but the spiritual landscape that was going on and so the kingdom of darkness had to respond by instituting these two things one of those being the false reality overlay and what that is designed to do is to obscure the existence of the satanic control matrix by altering our perception of what really is via means of social pressure word manipulation thought manipulation political correctness and historical alterations i mean it's pretty big in what it does mm-hmm. it essentially it acts as a a stealth filter that really blocks it's almost like camouflage for the satanic control matrix okay what real quick would it be fair um because you know we we talked about recently this year about those moments where we're like this is really surprising or we're shocked that something you know we do the research and find out that something is different than the way that we've thought would it be fair to to say that the way that we've thought is probably more in line with the false reality overlay? Like this is what they want you to see, and when you when you hit that shock, it's because you've you've kind of peered out of it into how things actually are. Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's like when you you start getting shocked, you're piercing the veil, and you get to see behind the veil. Where you're like, oh snap, this is what's really going on. Right. Okay. This is really what's happening in the control room. And here I didn't even know there was a control room. It's kind of like, you know, you see in that movie King Kong or Kong versus uh, Godzilla. When Kong is actually l- sitting in what looks to be paradise and it looks to be his native place. And he picks up a tree and just chucks it and it hits this panel. And then we find out that he's actually in an enclosure that's made to mm-hmm. look like his home. It's made to look like he's free, but it really is a prison, right? And he was like, I ain't fool. You ain't fooling no one. This ain't freedom. It's a nice, pretty little prison, and I ain't trying to be in it. That's kind of what happens, but what? I was just going to say, that's an excellent example. Like, that's exactly what it is. That's awesome. Yeah, and you you really (laughs) helped spring that one. So the control matrix, on the other hand, is the prison itself. Right. And this prison Uh is constructed off of three basic control tiers, because what you want to do is you want to issue out a full spectrum dominance control package. You want control over everything. This is the only way that the kingdom of darkness can regain the upper hand that they had. Well, not I won't say the only way. This is the key. One of the key components of them regaining or attempting to regain the tactical advantage that they lost. So okay. they got to go back. They try, got to try and get control. And being a military tactician, Satan is not stupid. He understands there are tiers to control. You want to control the individual boots on the ground. You need to have a game plan for dealing with each person. But people are like cells in a body. You can group them together. And as you group them together, they form parts like for human beings, we form houses and neighborhoods, communities, cities, 
counties, states, nations, regions, all the way up this social hierarchy. Well, it starts on the individual level. Then you move up to social groups. You want to control large groups of people. And then you need to funnel those large groups into overarching systems of control. And the systems level is on a global level. This is where you, you take those systems and you organize them to such a degree that they help to produce a a global network of control called the new world order. All this stuff okay. is, is, is iterated and it's in all of this stuff, not iterated. All of this stuff is interconnected and it's all designed to help Satan get back the power that he lost. Really fascinating stuff. But when we're yeah. talking about things like holidays, we can see this satanic control matrix working on all three levels. Take the individual control level. What do we get there? Well, that is really worked through a compromised educational system. And that system redefines love to be an expression of chemical releases no different than consuming large amounts of chocolate. Right? Is it, is that from the devil's advocate? I think it is. Okay. I think it is. I mean, the quote, but the idea is actually being played out in schools. No, yeah, it is. But like when you said it, I went to that movie. I'm like, wait, is that from that movie? Okay. I just wanted to make sure I wasn't. Yes, Kevin. Over here. Yes, Kevin. Okay. <laughs> I think that's what he that's called Keanu Reeves in the movie. Yeah. But it's also the place that many of us experience our, our, our primary interaction with Valentine's Day and the love rejection programming that we end up undergoing. Like there are people mm -hmm. who get their idea of social worth instilled in them at this moment where they realize, hey, people like me, I'm somebody. Or the opposite, nobody likes me. Nobody wanted to, me to be their Valentine. When I asked other people, would they be my Valentine? They had a little look on their face like, nay. She didn't like, she didn't accept that. Or for some people, he didn't accept that. You know, and we get this sense of self-worth imprinted on us as to how much we matter, how likable we are. This happens at a young, impressionable stage. Like, like the person you asked had enough cognitive capacity to truly be able to make this decision for you. But this is how we treated <laughs> as kids. Uh-huh. Right? And it's mm -hmm. like somebody once said. You will remember less of what a person said to you and way more of how they made you feel. That's interesting. It is, but it's true. Oftentimes, we even as adults, we can't recall exactly what was said, but we do know how people made us feel. <laughs> I don't know what you said, but I know I didn't like it. I didn't like it. <laughs> Piss me off. Right? But this, this happens at our impressionable stage. I don't think that's accidental. At the same time, it's causing us to form positive bonds or negative bonds with this particular holiday. And this okay. can have ramifications and echoes well into our adulthood. Mm -hmm. Well into our adulthood. You know, it can be moments like this to open us up to feeling like we're alone and dealing with spirits of loneliness. All because we had that. to. This has nothing to do with education. There's no reason for us to be going around buying Valentine's Day, filling them out and dropping them off of people's box or anything else from an educational perspective. 
Mm-hmm. It's a sprite. purely cultural. And it serves a cultural purpose. We see this next tier of control happening when it comes to social control. You know, we're dealing with with brainwashing that's being implemented across Nest technologies. That's news, entertainment, social media, and other technologies. And what do we see happening in that? Those 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 Nest operations become a place of significant emphasis on quote unquote romantic love and sexual coupling for the holiday. You know, you're gonna see that you're gonna hear about these stories on the news where people are like, oh, so and so was doing this for like, oh, that's so sweet. You're gonna see movies showing up in your entertainment that are gonna be more Valentine's Day re- related content, right? Hallmark Channel is gonna have a field day. Social media is gonna be flooded with what this person or that person was doing for Valentine's Day. And then, of course, there's gonna be a technological component through the algorithms that's going to push certain stories all with a specific narrative that's designed to funnel you toward a specific aim. What does this do? This reinforces our sense of aloneness in different ways. Even if we've got some positive impacts that we're putting out there, there are people who are going to live through social media. And even in a sense of social media is supposed to produce a sense of connectedness, it will still iterate our our separateness and our aloneness. Even okay. if all we're doing is just posting our own good time, it's not the same as actually sharing that with people. Mm-hmm. And what does all of that do? It continues the attack on the nuclear family by encouraging sexual coupling that will undoubtedly produce unwanted children that can lead to aborted or sacrificed children, which is consistent with the ancient rituals designed to worship the spiritual powers that are behind the holy day. That's crazy. All I didn't of even this. see that before. Right. This is this is nuts, dude, because all of this then gets focused into the global control apparatus. Right. It's used to re-engineer society and prepare them for the new world order. Well, how? Under the guise of syncretism, which is the whole thing of, re- of, of blending paganism and Christianity, the antediluvian practices, which means the the post-flood practices, And the Nimrodian worship rituals that were established at the Tower of Babel are being reinstituted with the endorsement and sadly with the participation of unwitting, quote unquote, Christians, which in turn is aiding in the terraforming of society to be willing to accept the goals of the of the ancient satanic world order and the gods of old and the endorsement of their Messiah, the replacement Christ. This is where all of that is heading. All of it. All of these holy days are pointing towards this. End of the day, replacing Jesus Christ and bringing about the satanic replacement Messiah. And getting the world ready to worship that beast. That's it's a crazy concept. I mean, it makes sense. I, I can see it. But like... It's crazy to think that you can go from Valentine's Day cards in a box... At, at, at elementary school age to being ready to accept the the, the replacement Messiah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's the goal. It is. That's the move. You know, and that's why you really have to ask that question that we were asking earlier at the beginning of the, of, of the, of the show talking about Valentine's Day. You know, is it really just an innocent holiday? Is it just about cards, candies, and flowers? You know, is it just a time of harmless romance between uh, what's that term I like? Twitter pated lovers. 
That's from Bambi, you know, right? I think the Twitter paid it part is. The, the, the Twitter paid it is, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I've never heard it anywhere else. And I had forgotten where I'd, I'd come up with that, where I'd heard that idea, that word. And I think it was until we were doing the notes, you were like, that's from Bambi. I'm like, is it? Was it Thumper who was talking about it? <laughs> uh, no, it was just the thing. Like in the spring, when you met someone, you got Twitter painted. It might have been the owl that was explaining it. Okay. That's interesting. Well, now, yeah. now we just have X. So we can't even have yeah. Twitter painted lovers anymore. So right. I guess, You're I guess we X lovers. I was going to say we've graduated, <laughs> but yes, I like that one too. Quick, quick sidebar. I, I don't want to take up you know too much of your time, but it really is interesting to me since we brought up Bambi and I think that God has wired my brain to like watch movies differently. Cause I remember as a, as a young child watching Bambi and at the, I, I can see it as clear a day, at least in the original, they probably changed it in the digital version. But if anyone has an original version of Bambi, like maybe the VHS at the end of the movie, um, there's a fire and all the animals are jumping off the cliff or whatever. Mm-hmm. And there's a raccoon that pulls its baby out of the water and is like licking it clean and it vanishes and like pops up on the other side of the screen. Same exact raccoon. It like moves over. And I remember I was like, bah, bah, and I'd rewind it. And I was like, look, this is so weird. Look what happened. I mean, what kid does that? Like, uh, I just Christopher think that Dean kid. Christopher Dean kid. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> That was still, it's really stuff. cool how he's wired your brain to be able to catch up on stuff like that. Yeah. Because we wouldn't actually awesome. be having this type of, of of an episode. We wouldn't be having this type of conversation dealing with the roots of Valentine's Day if it wasn't for the way that your mind is, is wired. And it's so important because Valentine's Day, in my opinion, really represents the ancient pagan celebration that has its ties back to blood, human sacrifice, and even monsters like werewolves. Which then means, bro, it's part of an ongoing war on humanity and against God himself. Which means we once again have to recalibrate our thinking on the issue. And we got to realize that we are, in fact, at war. But for those of us who seem to have some difficulty doing that measure of recalibration and think that we're safe in the midlands of Kansas, I turn you over to Colonel Miles Cortek for a reminder that you are not in Kansas anymore. You are on Pandora, ladies and gentlemen. Respect that fact every second of every day. Out there beyond that fence, every living thing that crawls, flies or squats in the mud wants to kill you and eat your eyes for jujubes. If you wish to survive, you need to cultivate a strong mental attitude. You got to obey the rules. You got to obey the rules and there's three rules of engagement here at ORP. Rule number one is educate yourself. Rule number two is do not cede any ground to the enemy. And rule number three is pray like it's all up to God and work like it's all up to you. So rule number one, educate yourself. We have to know what the Bible has to say about this. And we've gotten some flack for doing our holiday episodes. And in one, <laughs> in one particular interaction, uh, we got accused of cherry picking scriptures specifically because we didn't bring up this one. So I figured if, if it was causing some issues with a couple people, 
then maybe there are some people that are confused by this scripture that aren't speaking out. So let's just hit it head on and, and deal with this scripture. That's what I want to do. Scripture tells us that everything we do should be unto the Lord. So we have Romans 14, five through eight. It says one person esteems one day as better or more, more holy than another, while another esteems, esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. And the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For no one lives to himself and no one dies to himself. So the interesting thing about this one is if it's, if it's being used and contorted out of context to justify wanting to do things, and, and that's how I've heard it used, is, oh, well, one person says the day is holy, one person says it's not, so it doesn't matter what you do. Mm-hmm. That's, not what it, that's not what it's talking about. Because even if you do esteem it holy, then you have to participate in the things that God said to make it holy, right? You, have, you would have to be worshiping him the way he has said to worship him if you think there's a certain day that's special. And I would say that's perfectly fine. If you want to pick, I don't know, any random day, the the last, I can't think of a random day, May 12th. Okay. You're like, you know what? I really want this day to be a holy day. I really want to dedicate it to God. So, so look, what things can you do that actually please God on that day? Sure. That's what it's talking about. But here's the interesting part. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And when you get such backlash for just suggesting, hey, I'm not sure if you knew this information, then maybe you're not as convinced as you think that you are. Right. And the the other thing to consider is this is not descriptive. It's prescriptive. So the difference is when you're reading the Bible and taking it in context, if it's descriptive, it's telling you if you do A, B, and C, then D will happen, right? Mm-hmm. Like the Lord said, what is it? Cast your cares on me, you know, come to me with thanksgiving, you know, enter my courts with praise and, you know, do these things and you, I will give you the peace that passes all understanding. That would be descriptive. If you do these things, if you interact, if you are able to let go of your cares, you know, this is what's going to happen. Prescriptive is things that are a good idea. Uh, one that one that gets taken out of context is raise, bring up a child in the way they should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. It's prescriptive. Mm-hmm. They're words of wisdom from Solomon. Look, if you your best chance of having them raised right or like ending right is to raise them right. Okay. It doesn't mean that every child that's raised right is going to stay right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's it's a prescription. Here, do this. This is the the best chance. It, it's not a step-by-step process. And this, this passage here in Romans is prescriptive because it says no one lives to himself and no one dies to himself. Everything that they're doing in this example, you're doing unto the Lord. I've not talked to a single person who has celebrated Valentine's Day to the Lord doing the things that the Lord has said to do to honor and worship him. You got a point there. But if this prescription says that if you observe the day or don't observe the day, if you eat the food or abstain from the food, if all of that is done to the Lord, which it should be, nothing should be outside of that for us. We, we should not take a breath or give up a breath that we haven't oriented to God. Then every day should be oriented the way that he has called us to do. 
And that's not possible if one, we think the day is holy because pagan religions told us it was holy. And two, we make the day holy by participating in pagan practices. Both of those are outside of this prescription in Romans 14. I can dig it. Thanks. The other thing is that scripture warns us that we are to do nothing out of selfish ambition. Philippians 2.3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Nothing out of selfish ambition. That's a tall order. Yeah, when he said nothing, he just meant like a few things. <laughs> there were a few things I can make sure that I managed not to do that out of selfish ambition. Or, or conceit. <laughs> so, yeah. But James follows it up. James 3.16, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Dude, can we go back to the, the holy day thing? We can. Okay, so some of this stuff annoys me when we get some of these arguments because I hate to, to take the person's argument and throw it back at them. No, I don't. I don't mind doing that. When they said that we're cherry picking, uh huh, it seems like they're guilty of the same thing. Because they're like, just look at this one scripture and ignore the ones that we brought up. Or yeah, ignore the other ones. Ignore the ones where Jesus says, do not forsake the Sabbath, but remember to mm -hmm. keep it holy. But I thought I was allowed to pick whatever day I want. Mm, that's a good point. So yeah. why, why is this an issue here? Oh, so you mean there are some restrictions on things I should and should not be doing? Well, you know, <laughs> when the Bible said, do not sacrifice your children to Molech, this is detestable. But this is the holy day. This is what they do on this day. I'm allowed mm. to do whatever I want. Okay, cool. Now that we're on the I can do whatever I want, where is that in scripture? I can pick whatever day I want. I can celebrate God, whatever, however I want. Who are you to tell me that this is wrong? Nothing. Let's just carry this all the way out and tell you nothing's wrong. Any and right. everything you want to do is allowable and good. There was a person who said that in heaven. And then it was stated that there was no longer found a place for him in heaven. Because of said <laughs> rhetoric that he committed himself to. Yeah. That's so true. I don't get how we take the idea, I want to commit myself after this being. Okay. But I also want to do whatever else I want to do, even as it has ancient relations to other beings. Yeah. And be okay with that. No, it doesn't work that way. Well, okay. Let me take it out. Let me try it a third way. You know, when you're a guy and you're you're pining after a young lady and you get her a ring or some piece of jewelry, right? Mm -hmm. They tend not to like it when it's belonged to other women. Oh, it's a I curious like thing. It's a, it's a weird thing. It is. I mean, <laughs> hey, what, why should that matter? I, this is what I got you. Nah, that's got some ancient roots tied to it. That, that happened to be from old girl from behind. Don't worry about who it belonged to. You got it right now. This is yours. <laughs> yeah. They tend not to like that. I wonder why. That is a good point. Uh, thankfully, we serve a God that's way more understanding than the average woman. He won't have a problem <laughs> at all. We're bringing some worship in that has its roots and ties to some other beings that are completely hostile towards him. He's cool with it. Do you, boo-boo. Right? Yeah. How do we overlook what happened in the Garden of Eden? What happened mm -hmm. with Cain? Cain decided he wanted to do it his way. 
And it did not work. It wasn't accepted. Why do we think all of a sudden now it's going to be acceptable? Like, I don't get the mentality. It is such a strange mentality that says, I am going to be faithful as I sleep with all the women I can. Yeah. Like, there's a reason why the Bible looks at idolatry as spiritual whoredom. Mm Mm-hmm. Why is it that we have such an issue when anyone points out, hey, we probably shouldn't be doing this. I should be able to do whatever I want. Like that's inconsistent with the framework of being a serious follower of Christ. Like something has to be off the table. Something. There has to be at least one thing that you're not allowed to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Else you could do everything and then you're doing nothing. That's a good point. There's no distinction. That's exactly mm-hmm. what, okay, if you're not allowed or if you're permitted to take up whatever holy day you want, right? Mm-hmm. By definition, if it's a holy day, it's a set apart day. But if it's set apart, it's different from the others. There's a distinctive quality difference. <laughs> Even yeah. in the day, you're starting to see where I'm getting at, man. Uh-huh. This is why this stuff is irritating to me. Like it's, as you would say it, it's just nonsense. Right. This is buffoonery. No. And then, you know, you get these people that throw the stuff at you. You're like, come on, man. I'm trying to be nice. I'm really mm-hmm. trying to be nice, but it doesn't add up. Like, if you want to celebrate every holiday in front of you, that's really between you and God. But so are the ramifications. All right. So are the curses that fall on a person. So right. are the spiritual fallout and the generational cycles and you wonder why is this happening why is this an issue yeah okay you keep throwing up profane worship right and 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 to to be perfectly clear like we're careful not to cast judgment on people right we aren't condemning people but we're we're doing the thing that we're called to do and 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 judge behaviors right right we're judging the idea here right Really examining that. And I'm like, yeah, at some point you've got to cut something out. Man, even people Mm -hmm. that don't follow Jesus Christ recognize that. Why is it always us that try to make the argument for we can have everything? What do you mean we're never making the argument can't they have everything? No, we're never making the argument we should not have everything. Something should be cut. Gotcha, gotcha. I mean, shoot, you can't eat everything. You cannot drink everything. You can't breathe everything. You can't. There are limits and restrictions somewhere on this experiential plane of existence. Mm-hmm. And we try to live it just as free as we can. Oh, it's, it's so infuriating for me. But enough of that. I feel like I've already beat that horse to death, <laughs> resurrected it, and beat it again. Now, I'm glad you said something because when I finished that passage, you seemed annoyed. And I was like, did I do that bad of a job? That wasn't what I was annoyed at. I was annoyed right. with really with the whole, the rationale behind it. I gotcha. I gotcha. But then to, to lay into that, you know, everywhere that we see uh, envy and self-seeking, we see confusion and every, every evil thing, right? Like the, these are some pretty big claims on, on narcissism and selfish ambition. So if we're talking about celebrating holy days, then mm-hmm. I, I can see, uh, a couple of three scenarios primarily. One is that they, they actually exalt the true God. Okay. But, but that's not the case here. Or they exalt false gods, right? 
Which yep. which could be I, I'm I'm willing to debate. There's plenty of smart people that don't agree with me. Cool. Third one is they don't really exalt any gods, and we just do it because we want to. Okay. If that's where we land, if it's in this middle ground, then the Bible itself says <laughs> that uh, it breeds confusion, and there you find every evil thing. So. Don't judge me for looking at certain <laughs> holy days. It's, yeah, I, you know, in the infamous words of that, that ancient prophet, Bobby Brown, it's my prerogative. <laughs> I could do what I want to do. Uh, it's great. You know, we yeah. all have our thing where, no, I just want to do it. I want to do what I want to do. I'm like, okay, do what thou wilt. Shall be the whole of the law. Mm. Yeah, it, it's wild the notion. It is. It's understandable because we kind of like to protect the things that we like, and I, I get it. Mm -hmm. I think the challenging question is to really introspectively take a look at why do I like certain things, right? And I think that's why we we here at ORP we love the term serious Christ follower, right? Mm -hmm. Christian and all of this, and then people want to know what denomination you are, but a serious Christ follower. It's, it's, it's about taking whatever the self-interest is and putting it on the side. When you wake up to things, you know, to when, when you pierce the holes of the false reality overlay, mm -hmm. to be willing to let go of what you thought you knew, because we are not here to do what we want. We're here to do what Christ wants us to do, whatever that might be. Exactly. And I say that and it's, it's real uncomfortable and it makes me nervous. I'm like, please, please, Jesus, don't put something else up on. <laughs> on the altar that I got to sacrifice, but that's, that's our orientation. That's what we're supposed to be a serious follower of Christ. I agree. Thanks. I agree. And there's so much of our reality that is geared towards making that a non reality. That constantly says, you don't have to follow that closely. You don't have to follow that hard. You don't really have to be that committed. It really doesn't make a difference. All roads lead to heaven. You're good to go. He's a good God. He loves you. He's not going to really judge you like that or something like that. Are you kidding me? Shoot. Yeah. Sooner or later, he won't even, there's, there's no such thing as hell. There's no eternal punishment. There's no real divine justice. Any and everything yeah. goes. It's really, really problematic when we start tearing it apart. Like, I'm at the place now. I don't struggle with the idea of having to let stuff go. I struggle with the stuff I'd leave to let go. Okay. But I do understand <laughs> I'm going to have to let some stuff go. I gotcha. Right? The, uh, when we're when I'm dealing with people that are really committed to the idea that you don't have to let anything go, that one baffles my mind. Because even yeah. Jesus himself showed so much of, of, of a lifestyle that he was letting things go, refusing to be caught in the satanic web of, of deceit and control. Mm-hmm. And that's really what happens as, you, as we participate in these days. It's not accidental that they're spread across the entire uh, the, the the entire year. You right. know, even at at the point of um, Valentine's Day, you know, where you just are getting ready to to come out of actually would have come out of it a few weeks before, but right at the beginning of February is, is the pagan festival of Imbolc. Oh, I forgot about that. Right. So there's a spiritual energy that's already preceded even this thing of Valentine's Day. 
and mm-hmm. it's constantly being seeded across the entire year. Different festivals, different pagan holy days. What is it? I think eight of them spread across the entire year. Eight basic pagan uh, seasons that mm-hmm. we that we enter and exit out of. It's right. no wonder that we have these holidays to follow it and know just because you slap a Christian title on it, call the person Saint this or Saint that, does not excuse its spiritual roots at all. Right. And it's interesting because we touched on people getting sick by unknowingly participating in pagan holidays. Mm-hmm. And this is the last one for flu season. Oh. Flu season peaks right around February and then bleeds off because there's not very many. I mean, I think we have to go. Wait, it peaks in February? I thought it peaked in December. Peaks in December to February. Okay. But wanes on each side of that. Like, so okay. this marks the, the beginning of the end for flu season, which is the beginning of the end for the holiday season in, West, in the Western world. Okay. Which is interesting. Got you. Because at least as far as practiced holidays, this is the last in the, in the tight grouping of um, Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, Valentine's Day. Got you. Okay. Crazy stuff. Yeah. But- So the last scripture that I wanted to bring up is the fact that we can actually worship God in vain. Matthew 15, eight and nine said, these people draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me and in vain, they worship me teaching as the doctrines, the commandments of men. Now the phrasing is, is so difficult. I couldn't find a translation that had that make more sense, but it's teaching the commandments of men as doctrines. I don't know why it has it backwards each time, but beyond the sensational werewolves and the jokes and the fact that we're hitting these, I think is really part of the heart of ORP and why we do this. It's because we were once these Christians, Christians can worship in vain. And just as much as you'd see somebody working on a vehicle or cutting their grass or doing something in a way that makes no sense and makes it harder for themselves. Like if someone's pushing around a lawnmower without it being on, (laughs) if you really care about that person, you're like, look, you're mowing in vain. I'm not mowing in vain. Don't judge me on how I mow my lawn. You know, (laughs) like, no, look, you, you really need to, to, to pull that string And I know it's loud and uncomfortable, but then it's actually going to do the job. And that's really why we're doing this. We're not trying to make people feel bad, but if God himself says that you can worship him in vain, we don't want anyone in that spot. Right. And, you know, I've heard a bunch of people say the argument that I really think God will say, you know, either you believed the right thing or you tried hard enough. And, and God's full of grace, but he's also just, yeah. Like you've been saying, he can't let everything slide. And if he's cutting stuff, what is he cutting? That's that's what we really have to look at. And, you know, I mentioned before not judging. Chuck Missler was really good at saying that we don't judge people. We judge fruit. We're fruit inspectors is what he said. I think that's just a, a, a cool way of looking at it. Right. And, you, know, go- you know, it's like, it's just, I didn't mean to interrupt you, dude. No, sorry. Right, go ahead. Well, it's this idea, though, that, you know, in the essentials, we, we need to have unity, mm-hmm. right? We need to be unified on the essential doctrines of, of Christianity. But then the non-essentials, we give liberty. You know, there, you, you've got some areas in which you've got to make your own decisions. But in all things, we've got to deal with it from a position of love. And what right. love doesn't do is just says, be on your way. I don't care. 
Mm-hmm. Right. You got to say something and a person can decide what they're going to do. Even in scripture, it says, you know, when you present the when you present the offer of salvation to a place and if they reject it, then you shake the dust off your feet and move along. But at least there was a presentation made. Right. Somebody right. has to speak up. Somebody has to say something. Mm-hmm. And I think we would do well to develop the mentality of we're going to have to look at these aspects of the control matrix that we've been under to see where can we root it out from our lives. Right. That's it. That's all right. we're trying to do because there's, there's freedom that's found in that. And one of the things we were talking about in our prior episode on, um, uh, what was it that we, we were talking about? I forget the name of the episode, but you had brought up the idea of Reed Hastings and Netflix and how there was competition even for our quiet time. Mm-hmm. Right. If we weren't really focused on the fact that that time could be seized, then you might have a person talking about who cares. But that's right. the reality. There's so many aspects of our lives that can be seized and weaponized against us that we have to ask those tough questions. And sometimes the most dangerous weapon is the one that looks the most innocent. For sure. So a savvy a person. noisy cricket. Has, right. You got to look at everything when you're in a war zone. Right. And it's crazy that you said, look at everything. Cause going back to the first scripture that we used, the actual Greek word for be convinced, right? Like everyone should be fully convinced. That's what it says. Mm-hmm. Well, the Greek word is, uh, and I'm going to mess this up. Paleroforeo, something like that. But it means, it doesn't mean be convinced because there's a bunch of people in the world today in the English speaking world that you can be convinced and not have any information. There's a lot of people that are convinced and they're dead wrong, right? Mm-hmm. But if we're looking at everything, this thing that we're supposed to be, which God says, it says to bear or bring full, to make full, to cause a thing to be shown to the full, to fulfill the ministry in every part, carry out to the end. To, uh, to fill one with any thought, conviction, or inclination. To make one certain. To persuade, to convince one. Fully convinced or assured. So I think it's been used five times. It's translated fully persuaded, most assuredly believed, be fully, loan, fully known, and make full proof of. Hmm. That's... Yeah, that's what we're doing. If we are participating or not participating, right? We have to be fully convinced. Yeah. It is the expectation that God has given us to not take anything, right? To what what was the term? To um cause a thing to be shown to the full. That's that's what these episodes are about. Yeah. Helping these things, pulling them out of the false reality overlay and having them be seen in full, because if not, then you can't be convinced from a biblical perspective. And if we're not doing that, if we're not willing to put in the work, right, to dive deep, then we're, we're giving up the mental real estate. And that is in violation of rule number two, which is do not cede any ground to your enemy. What do you have for that one, Jason? You know, one of the most effective attributes of the false reality overlay that you were just talking about is the ability to obscure the existence of the satanic control matrix and the operators of darkness. What this does is it leaves us vulnerable to mistaking our enemy for a friend. Now, this is crucial because the first step in any engagement is the need to discern between friend or foe. 
the most effective piece of combat equipment that we've been given to achieve that aim is in fact the word of God. This gives us, to borrow a Thundercat phrase, sight beyond sight. And it allows us to pierce the spiritual veil revealing our truest foe. vulnerability ends when we take the word of God as serious and we actually do what it says do and believe what it says about our reality and until we're willing to do that we will never achieve the victory that is within our grasp but if we're going to achieve that victory then we have to be willing to follow the third rule of engagement and that is pray like it's all up to God but work like it's all up to us Christopher, what are some things that we could be praying about? Uh, well, the first thing I think we should pray about is the spiritual, spray, pray against the spiritual entities that are actually getting charged up through the energy of um, sex magic and things, specifically for Valentine's Day, but really any holy day. Because the, 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 um, what is it? The engineering or the mechanisms provide power to these entities through these ritual practices that were set up that fulfill contractual behavioral obligations set in play years before we got here. So definitely uh, pray pray against those things. You know, take up spiritual warfare. Um, I think uh, we should also pray for those who are blind to what the pagan days are really about. Mm. Okay. It is a false reality overlay. It's an institution that was put in place by supernatural forces. You know, frogs that are born and raised in the dark don't have the ability to see. So it is really difficult sometimes. You know, I think you use the the matrix analogy that, uh, you know, it's difficult for the mind. Sometimes the mind wants to snap. Mm-hmm. You know, and in the matrix, they even say we have a role. We don't, we don't take a, a mind out that has been in here so long because it has trouble letting go. It is a really difficult thing. So prayer is necessary to help people escape the matrix and, and wake up. Right. Um, but another thing, the last thing I think we should uh, pray for or do, pray and do, is repent for all the times we've actually... Uh, allowed ourselves to fall victim to the glitz and the glamour that puts these rituals up on a pedestal. And we can't just say, I'm sorry. Repentance actually requires that we turn and stop doing the things. If, if in fact we know that they're wrong. Yeah. Sometimes that's tough. It is, but it's a key aspect of the service requirement. 
for the God that we say we serve and follow seriously. Mm-hmm. But I think that that takes us to the work portion. And the first thing that I think we should do for work <laughs> is um, stop boinking on Valentine's Day. <laughs> you need yes, help, no? dude. <laughs> really well, it do. gets it gets worse because I think if we're married, we need to stop waiting for the pagans to tell us when to jump in the sack. We should be putting them to shame, right? Yes, we are the ones. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, I, I haven't even processed that yet. And you you moved on. <laughs> okay, this is the only person I've ever heard use the term boink. <laughs> all right so yeah that that's great but uh, to your point i would agree i i think that as as people who who are again serious followers of christ and engaged in a marriage i think those people should be putting the world to shame with sexual intimacy right. because it's our god that created it mm-hmm. and, and we shouldn't created- need the world to tell us when it is an appropriate time for us to engage in those activities that have been sanctioned by his word. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because the science actually shows that the, the most fulfilling, enjoyable sexual relationships are ones that are found within the confines of a long distance committed relationship, AKA a marriage. Now you don't see that on porn sites and that's not the sex that sells. So they're constantly, again, false reality overlay. This is what is going to fulfill you when the reality of it is actually far different. But I think that Christians should be, I don't want to say more vocal. Like I'm not saying Christian billboards, you know, about sex necessarily, but maybe we could even start a trend that if, if, if we're doing it right and you're a married Christian couple, like maybe we should all be walking funny or something. Like our <laughs> lives should be a testament to <laughs> how I'm so done. <laughs> so to how done. amazing sex is because our God created it. That's all I'm saying. Christopher, if I ever see you walking funny, <laughs> I'm telling you, our friendship is going to take a very, very different turn. What's that mean? What does it mean? Yeah. For Valentine's Day, I'm going to get you a bottle of Vaseline and tell you to walk it off. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm running the other way because I want people misconstruing I had anything to do with said process. That's fine. Hey, there's many other parts of the body that affect the way that you walk. Yeah, this Leg is true. muscles, thighs. You could throw your back out. Like all that makes you walk funny. That's all I'm saying. You know what? You've been doing this all day. You, you come up with these provocative statements and you try to backpedal out of it. I'm pretty good at it by now. Yeah, I know what you meant. Even the people <laughs> listening know what you meant. There's a five-year-old right now that goes, Daddy, why Vaseline? I will tell you when you're older. You can't listen to ORP no more. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, but the other thing to do, I think, is do some looking into this stuff yourself. Acts yes. 1711 tells you don't believe anything that ORP says. Check it out for yourself. You know, we compiled some links and resources, you know, that, that make it easy to find some of this stuff. But even though we spent hours doing the research, this is just one episode and there's tons of stuff that we haven't even scratched the surface on. There's t- a bunch of information out there that, that can help expose this stuff for what it really is. Oh, dude, I'm so glad you said that. 
Uh, it, it because it's so important for people to realize the fact that, hey, you know, we may do our research, we come to certain conclusions, but you have to do the stuff for yourself. The Berean approach is what's so important. You know, when they listened, they received what was being said to them with all openness of mind. But then they went back to search for themselves and find out, is this true? Mm-hmm. We can't farm out our thinking on any level to anyone. We have to right. be thinkers. If we were going to farm it out to anyone, it should be to the Bible and trying to establish the mind of Christ so that we think like him. But we still have got to be exercising our thinking. And the best way to do that for people who have trouble is to share the show. Let the (laughs) show do some of the work. You know, Mm -hmm. let it be the training wheels for a person who's new to the game on being an independent thinker trying to be more biblically minded, trying to follow Christ a bit more directly and succinctly and let us do the work. There are people, dude, who have been helping us out on this and they have been absolutely amazing. They've been getting the shares. They've been sending the texts. They've been actually forwarding the stuff on Facebook and on Instagram. It's been amazing, dude. We've seen so much growth here. And by way of the growth, we're getting feedback on how this stuff is really helping to impact people. Shoot, one of our listeners hit us up and they were like, hey, where did you guys talk about um, what, what, what was the what was the chemical? Fluoride. Fluoride. Right? Fluoride. Yeah, where'd you yep. guys talk about fluoride and its impact that it's having? Because I want to go talk to my local community and actually talk to city council and get them to to remove whatever ordinance they put in place to add fluoride to the city's water supply. And I want to use some of the research as a, as a starting place. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> are you yeah. kidding me? I was like, Jason, we're not doing enough. Our listeners Nearly are, are outshining us. <laughs> right. We never thought about that. <laughs> I was like, that's crazy. But what is it? How, how does that come about? Man? It comes from sharing the show. So all those who have joined with us and have partnered with us to, to share, bottom of my heart, I want to say thank you. Please keep doing what you're doing. You're really making an impact, not just for us, but you're making an impact on other people's lives. Keep doing it. For those who are a little new to the game, maybe a little apprehensive, don't know how you want to get into these conversations. Look, very simple pitch. You can just tell people, hey, from what you're talking about, you might want to take a listen to this group of guys. They'd be into some weird, real wild stuff. And just leave it simply <laughs> that. And if they like it, they like it. They don't, they don't. But hey, you shared it. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be intimidated about it. You just get it out there. And it right. really helps. It definitely helps. Now, there are those people who are a little bit more committed to the cause. And Sharon's not the only step that they want to take. They want to become supporters of the show. They want to ju- they want to join the support squad and become operators. And for those people who say, go on over to Patreon.com and sign up. Now, Christopher, you got the particulars on what they can get over there, right? <laughs> yes. All yes. right, go ahead and share that with the peoples. So first I want to say thank you for all the, the patrons that have already jumped on. Yes. Huge help. Huge help. Yes, yes. It is is much time and effort that we put in, and 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 needing the the equipment and stuff to to get this done. Uh, there there were some times we were sweating it, but but once we had people jump on and and really help support the show, it really gives some some breathing room, so we don't feel like we're constantly fighting for air. There's still a little bit of that, but you know, less. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 so we're we're very thankful for that. But you can find uh, you can find us at our home site at orppodcast.com. But if you want to find us on Patreon, jump on as a supporter. It's patreon.com slash orppodcast. So we have three tiers. Ground level is cover fire. Tier number one for five bucks a month. Gets you all the links and resources we use to make the episode, as well as access to full-length versions of all of our episodes. Bonus ones, once we've released half for free and half behind a paywall, all of that is is yours whenever you want for that $5 a month tier. And the way that it works is all of the links and resources are in the post with the audio. It's all in one spot, one nice little neat package. So any episode, you go and look. You know, it says Christopher and Jason did it, and any links and resources we use to make it can be found right there. But if you want more, you can jump in on the second level, provide Overwatch support at tier two for seven bucks a month, gets you everything in the first tier, as well as access to the actual studio notes that we're looking at as we go through the episode. So those will be a separate post on Patreon labeled as the studio notes for each episode. But this will have like little jokes, um, you can see places we might have made a mistake. And a lot of times there's information that we don't have time to cover due to time constraints or, or what have you. So it's 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 really cool, a little bit of a, a VIP pass background uh, and a lot of times some extra information if that's what you're into. And then for all the ORP that we can offer the people right now, <laughs> you jump in top level, bring the rain tier three, 10 bucks a month gets you everything in the first two tiers, as well as an opportunity to chat real time zoom call with both Jason and I and our other tier three operators. And that's a fantastic time. Let's us get into current events. Uh, let's us, uh, uh, you know, spitball some ideas. Patrons can can offer suggestions for episodes, things they'd like to hear, things they'd like to hear less, Megan. And we just have a really good time <laughs> you know, d- discussing some of these, uh, getting able to, being able to dig deep on some of these topics uh, that you just don't have time for in, in an episode. And, and you can't communicate, you know, when you're just putting out a, a podcast every week. Right. And our Super next cool. one, our next Zoom call is actually going to be at the end of this month on the 25th. Between okay. uh, 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So you've got a few weeks. What is that? Uh, about three weeks to go ahead and get signed up, get it going, and uh, meet us over there on Zoom. Because we would love to have a conversation with you. It is an absolute blast, all the people that we get to talk to, the questions we get asked, the change of perspectives that people provide from things that mm-hmm. they see from their, their section of the country it's, or, or even the world. It, it's really cool. And this yeah. is a whole, it's not even just for people in the United States. You know, anybody from around the world can join the Zoom call. Yep. And we'd love to have you. For sure. And here's the last thing that you can do is remind yourself of what scripture tells us, which is that we are never alone and we're not fighting alone. God has promised to never leave us. And we have a community of believers all over the world and a loving God who actually intervenes on our behalf. Because one day we will be free from the tainted Nephilim epigenetic blood curse. One day the celestial beings such as Pan and Moloch will pay and pay dearly for what they have done to our children. And one day we will know and understand intimacy far beyond the confines of our physical bodies. 
But until then, we are deployed to this dystopian rock by our savior in chief, the very one that's commissioned us on a seesaw. That's right. We're on a combat search and rescue mission here, people. And be advised, the hostages we're after are likely to be hostile towards us, but we still gotta go get them. Now our task and order is simple. We're to search for and rescue anyone that can be sympathetic to Christ, but is currently held hostage under Satan's deception. And make no mistake, we will be operating in a hostile environment, but the rules of engagement are clear. Listen up, if you take fire, we expect you to give fire. Now I need you to keep your head on a swivel out there. You stay frosty, stay faithful, and above all, stay in the fight. That means do not give up, because we're counting on you. You ain't alone out there. We're fighting right next to you, and we'll see you out there again fighting on the the front line 104 